Venezuela, where I was born and still have family, bad. Cuba, bad. Zimbabwe, bad. Soviet Union, bad. China under Mao, bad. Sweden, Denmark, Norway, good. This is the socialist report card as it currently stands. Never mind that Venezuela, Cuba, Zimbabwe, the Soviet Union, Mao's China were once good. Once they go bad, they stay bad and are quickly forgotten, lost down the memory hole. But those Nordic paradises, they never let you down. Whenever Bernie, the squad, and the growing horde of democratic socialists ever get cornered, there's always, like Denmark, to come to the rescue. No, no, we don't want anything like what's going on in Venezuela. Denmark is what we have in mind. Except they don't. And it's time we all figured this out before it's too late. Here's what you need to know about Scandinavian countries. They are capitalists in wealth creation and socialists in wealth distribution. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. Um, I am going to be speaking in just a moment with uh, Matt McManus, uh, who is a good friend of mine, uh, comrade. Uh, you may have seen him on Jacobin's uh, YouTube or, or read him, uh, his, uh, his pieces in Jacobin. We're going to be talking about a couple of those uh, and also um, the broader subject that's explored in those articles, which is the relationship between Marxism and philosophical liberalism. Uh, after that, we are going to be joined by uh, Matthew Sitman, uh, who is, among other things, the uh, the co-host of the Know Your Enemy podcast. Uh, and uh, me and Matt McManus are going to be talking to Matt Sitman about uh, what uh, the other Matt talks about on that podcast, uh, about what we can learn uh, as, as leftists from knowing our enemy, from, from studying conservatism. Uh, and then uh, in the second half of the show, I'm going to be joined by David Griscom for basically a super extended version of Outlaws and Revolutionaries, uh, where uh, we are going to interview Matt Sitman about uh, an article that he wrote for Dissent magazine called E Pluribus Country, uh, where he talks about country music and leftism, which is obviously kind of the, the bread and butter uh, of, of this show. Um, and, you know, we'll talk more about how we, we kind of see that, right? Why it is that me and Griscom uh, are always talking about this music uh, in, uh, in the second half. Uh, but, of course, the voice uh, that you just heard uh, was uh, from um, Debbie uh, D'Souza, uh, a, a native Venezuelan and political commentator uh, accusing um, democratic socialists or really Social Democrats like Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of lying um, when uh, they say that uh, really they'd like to uh, to emulate um, Nordic uh, social democracies when really what they secretly have in mind uh, is Venezuela. All right, um, so I just wanted to uh, to start off with this uh, because uh, you know it, you know just just get a little dose of uh, of logic for the left uh, at the beginning of the show and think about how this argument works. Uh, that what uh, what D'Souza is basically saying in the video uh, is that well they say uh, that uh, that they they don't want 
what exists in Venezuela uh, or or Cuba or the Soviet Union, but uh, but actually they do, uh, and the evidence for that uh, is that past socialists have sometimes admired these societies, uh, and they say that they want the uh, what exists in the Nordic social democracies, uh, but uh, but they can't really mean that because the Nordic social democracies, didn't you know, they still have capitalism. All right, so. Anytime that you're trying to do an argument by analogy, hey, here's the Bernie Sanders program, uh, and it's it's really exactly like whatever society that you want to make some spooky-sounding comparison to uh, because you think that Americans are afraid of the very idea of that society. Well, that's an argument by analogy. You're saying that these two things are like each other in respects X, Y, and Z. So therefore, they're also going to be like each other in these other respects, that they have various social programs that might be advocated by Bernie Sanders in those societies. Therefore, um, you know, the Bernie's vision of what America would become is going to be like them in all of these other respects, too, that you won't like so much. Um, you know, chaos or uh, political repression uh, or the kind of economic crisis that Venezuela's had for the last several years. Here's the problem with that, that the analogy that if you're going to say, hey, they don't really want this thing, then they want this other thing. Well, you have to look at two things. This is how you evaluate any argument by analogy. You have to look at the relevant analogies. Here are the relevant things they have in common. And then you look at the relevant disanalogies. Here are the relevant things they don't have in common. That's, uh, that's how you evaluate an argument by analogy. Uh, and in particular, in this case, when you're saying it's more like this thing than the other thing, what you need to do uh, is you need to run the analogies on both sides. Uh, and in particular, you need to say, okay, well, what is the difference between Venezuela, for example, and Denmark, um, which, by the way, has an extremely uh, extensive social democratic welfare state. Uh, they haven't gone as far as Finland, for example, on education. Uh, private schools are entirely banned in Finland. 100% of Finnish schools are, are public schools. Uh, but uh, they do have uh, a largely nationalized hospital system, which actually goes way beyond uh, the, Bernie, uh, the Bernie Sanders program. Now, it's true that some socialist people like me, uh, who are socialists in not just the sense that we support social democratic programs that might be referred to as socialist policies, but also socialists in the sense that we support going beyond capitalism entirely, that we do want to go further than what exists in places like Denmark and Finland and Norway and Sweden. Uh, that we think that those countries are important proofs of concept because they've successfully beta tested so many of the immediate social democratic reforms that we advocate for the United States. Uh, but that doesn't mean we think that they're the end point of human history. They are most definitely still capitalist countries. So does that mean that what we want is more like Venezuela than it is like Denmark or Finland or Sweden or Norway? No. Because here's the part that D'Souza is not going to tell you, that if 
you think socialism comes in degrees. If you equate public ownership with socialism, so anytime the state owns a chunk of the economy, that's socialist and that's very debatable. I uh, say, well, is the, socialist, is the post office a socialist institution? Is the U.S. Navy a socialist institution? Lots of socialists have thought that we should set the bar higher for what counts as a socialist institution than that. But if we are going to play that game, say that uh, public sector equals socialism, Venezuela has a much smaller public sector than any of the Nordic countries. Uh, in fact, Venezuela, even at the height of Hugo Chavez's welfare state before the kind of austerity that's uh, had to happen since then because of the economic meltdown, has a smaller public sector than France. So to be clear, what that means is a smaller percentage of Venezuelans than Frenchmen, never mind Swedes and Danes, work for the public sector as opposed to regular private capitalist corporations. So whatever your equivalent, your explanation is of why Venezuela had the economic meltdown that it does, whatever you emphasize and the various factors that people point to ranging from currency, currency mismanagement to, uh, to U.S. sanctions to uh, some of the political decisions, whatever your explanation is, it can't be because they went too far in a socialist direction because if you view any sort of expansion of the state as socialism, which I don't, I think socialism is workers control the means of production, uh, which obviously they don't have in Venezuela for the most part. Uh, cooperatives are only a very small part of the economy in percentage terms any more than they have it in Sweden or Norway or Denmark or Finland. But if you do think that public sector equals socialism, then Denmark and Finland and Norway and Sweden are way more socialist than uh, Venezuela, which is why, even though, of course, PragerU is a highly respected institution of higher education, I think that in this case, their argument falls flat. I am now joined uh, by um, my friend and comrade, uh, Matt McManus. Uh, Matt, do you, want to, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, how's it going, Ben? Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name is Matt McManus. I'm a professor of politics at Whitman College. Um, I'm also a sometimes contributor to a bunch of different outlets, uh, including Jacobin, Marion West, and Aereo. Uh, and I'm the author of The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, amongst other books, uh, and with Ben, we actually co-authored Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson, uh, which I guess is the last big piece that uh, had come out, but hopefully not the last. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and uh, and I, I should also uh, say for, uh, for, for the sake of uh, a full disclosure that my, uh, my liver is probably still recovering from, uh, from when uh, Matt was still teaching uh, in uh, in Mexico City, and I visited him there and uh, and and spent a weekend uh, uh, bar hopping and drinking tequila and mezcal and uh, talking about socialism, which uh, is you know the kind of thing that we cannot do anymore because of the pandemic. But I I really miss. Uh, hey, you talk about your liver. My memory is still you know a little bit hazy about those nights. So yeah, no great times, great times. One day. You know. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so uh, the reason that I wanted to uh, to bring you on to talk, well, first of all, uh, when we uh, we get uh, the other Matt, Matt Sittman on, uh, he co-hosts a podcast called uh, Know Your Enemy, where they spend a lot of time digging into uh, conservatism. 
uh, and this is also a subject that uh, that you have written extensively about, you know, so I thought that would be an interesting conversation. But also, for just a few minutes before that, I wanted to talk about a couple of articles that you've written uh, for Jacobin mm-hmm. um, pretty recently, right, in the last, uh, in the last few weeks, uh, where you talk about the relationship between Marxism uh, and, uh, and philosophical liberalism. And I, I think that some people... Um, even though, look, I think that there is plenty of room for reasonable people to disagree about uh, exactly how to think about the relationship between those two things. Uh, is is uh, is Marx's vision of socialism about more completely fulfilling the the best ideals uh, of um, of philosophical liberalism? Uh, you know, is it a development of it? Is it a break from it? Is it kind of a development and kind of a break? Uh, but I think a lot of people I saw in reaction to, uh, especially the first one of those two articles, had a kind of Pavlovian reaction to, to seeing the word uh, liberalism uh, there. Uh, because, of course, if you're, uh, you know, I mean, I kind of get it, right? I mean, if, if, you're, a, if you're a leftist, you, you have socialist politics, um, you know, you spend a lot of time defining yourself against the people that we usually refer to as liberals, uh, in uh, in American politics, uh, and so especially when people have this kind of like um, I don't know I, I, I guess it's probably too generous to say Schmidtian, but this kind of like really strong immediate visceral friend enemy uh, reaction, uh, then they they might have it to that. But I, I want to try to dig into a little bit the the point that you were actually making there, right? So mm-hmm. so when we talk about liberalism in this context, what do we actually mean? Well, I mean, that's one of the contentious things that I try to address in the article, right? Uh, and there's certainly a lot of ways that you can interpret liberalism, some more charitable and some more negative, right? Um, and I would agree, actually, with a lot of the negative interpretations of liberalism, right? Um, sometimes liberalism uh, should very much be associated with what I suppose we can call the Malcolm X point, uh, which is, you know, liberals are nice, squishy people uh, who say a lot of good things but don't actually really act upon them uh, and all too often end up siding with the reactionary forces in society, right? I think liberalism can also be interpreted as an ideological superstructure uh, for defending capitalist relations, and that's another problem, right, that we can talk about. Uh, But the point that I was trying to make uh, in the essay uh, was that a more charitable way that we can interpret liberalism is as a doctrine that's committed to moral equality, right, Uh, and particularly a modernist doctrine committed to moral equality. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that liberals are committed to the idea that people should be equal in fact. Uh, it's just that they should be understood uh, in terms of the law uh, as being fundamentally equal. Yeah, so, so if, you right. think, if you think about a lot of, a lot of pre-modern ideas about how to, to justify uh, the, the ways that any given society would work, a lot of it has to do with the idea that like, some people just kind of innately have a status that other people don't. That the, uh, just, to, just to maybe put this in crude terms, right, the the king deserves to be the king, you know, because, because he has the blood of Kings, you know, uh, going through his veins. Uh, and, uh, and that, that God has created the Lord and the surf in their respective places. Uh, and, and so that's, that's just the way that it, it, it should be. And it's only natural that they have entirely different rights and duties to the state. Uh, and so whatever else liberalism means, right. When you talk about moral equality, what we mean is at the very least, uh, rejecting all that, right. Say, say that, no, um, nobody just kind of innately deserves to um, to have a kind of status that other people don't 
uh, because of some contingent facts uh, about their uh, about their birth, uh, that uh, that that's that that's un, unjustified, right? You know, and so when you think about people like uh, you know like John Locke uh, or you know very different tradition within liberalism, but a little bit later on, like John Stuart Mill, you know, or or, or any of these guys, like that's a big part of the, the core point, uh, and. And I think that maybe it's it's also worth making a distinction here because because uh, I I think that liberalism can definitely mean a couple of different things that aren't that aren't cleanly separate right I mean they're all historically entangled with each other uh, but one thing it means is what you just said right which is more or less how um, uh, John Rawls you know uh, who who I kind of think of as the sort of culminating figure in in, in this kind of philosophical liberal tradition oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, you know how he puts it is is pretty much exactly what you would just say just said, right? You know, liberalism is is fundamentally about moral equality, uh, and so maybe we can think of that as like broad philosophical liberalism. Uh, and there's also, but we could also talk about like narrow philosophical liberalism, which which might mean like more specifically the the views about political theory of some of those figures that I just mentioned, like John Locke. Uh, which obviously does very much conflict with socialism because uh, a big part of their conception of individual rights was about was about property rights, including you know property and, and the means of production. And obviously, you know, socialists stand for anything. It's 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 opposition to that. And then and then like maybe a third thing is we could talk about uh, maybe like procedural civic liberalism, which is roughly what we mean when we talk about liberal rights, like uh, right to free speech, you know, free assembly, things like that. Uh, and then, and then a fourth thing would be liberalism, like as a contemporary political option. And I, th- I think I suspect that a lot of the bad reaction to your piece is about uh, the first piece, especially that uh, that you know. Well, okay, one, it's about the fact that 2020 is a hellscape and people only read headlines. But but the other part is that uh, is is that I think maybe that that some people are collapsing all of the above into that last option. That like by liberalism they mean like contemporary American liberalism, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Or neoliberalism, uh, which I think we should smash, by the way. Uh, right. And, you know, not a day too soon. Uh, but when, you know, one of the points I made, and I thought you articulated this really clearly, right, is if you look at even proto-liberal thinkers like Hobbes, right, uh, he contrasted himself very starkly to someone like Aristotle. And Aristotle insisted uh, in the politics and elsewhere that there are some people that are just natural slaves. Right. right? Uh, and there's really nothing that they can do about this. And he'd also make claims to the fact that, you know, women are deficient in practical reason, which is why they don't uh, need to have political rights to the same extent that men should, so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an argument that takes many different forms through history, uh, and it's always associated with a kind of reactionary viewpoint. Uh, probably the most radical iteration of this, uh, and I say that somewhat paradoxically, uh, would be somebody like Adolf Hitler in the fascist tradition. Right. right? Uh, at one point, Hitler says, uh, and again, I apologize for the language, right, uh, that the so-called Jewish doctrine of Marxism with its egalitarianism uh, is contrary to what he calls the aristocratic principle of nature, uh, which is that some are higher and some are lower. And of course, he casts this in racist terms, right? Uh, and he says, you know, if this so-called Jewish doctrine of Marxism and its equality is allowed to reign over the earth, it's going to mean the destruction of all life on the planet, Right. Uh, so this extreme manic paranoia about the potential for equality to just wreak havoc on humankind, right? Contrast that with somebody like Hobbes, right? Hobbes will say, as a good proto-liberal thinker, in the state of nature, all people are equal. Uh, and he'd say, even a man who's more intelligent and strong uh, than another and than anyone else can easily be defeated uh, by two other individuals, uh, or you can just kill him in his sleep, right? 
Uh, so everyone starts off in this position of equality, uh, and any inequalities that result there and after have to be justified. Um, whether you're talking about in terms of justifications uh, because of um, moral efficiency, oh, sorry, um, political efficiency or economic efficiency, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the argument that I made in the article was that once we recognize liberalism as a doctrine about moral equality in this sense, there's a lot of ways socialists can engage in conversations with liberals, right? Uh, and this is something that I think Rawls points out really effectively in his book, right? Which is that if liberals really do believe in this doctrine of moral equality, there's this a significant problem uh, in the longstanding liberal support for things like economic inequality, right? Since you should be committed to this idea that everyone's going to have a good life, since everyone's life is equally important to them and should be equally important to the state, right? Uh, and you know, I what, what I say is that. Um, if we want to start having these conversations, looking at the work of writers like Rawls or Martha Nussbaum or Ronald Dworkin uh, would be a good place to start since there's a lot of theoretical materials there uh, which should be amenable uh, to a socialist outlook, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, look, I'll say just to just to connect some dots for anybody who's uh, watching or listening to this who's like a real uh, GTAA head and, uh, and, and has, has watched all the previous episodes uh, that – a former guest, you know, once and future guest and friend of the show, Freddie DeBoer, uh, in in his um, in his book Call to Smart, uh, where he, uh, you know, he he advocates uh, actually extremely radical socialist, uh, you know, solutions at at the end of the book. But uh, but a, a big part of his argument is uh, is explicitly uh, lifted from from Rawls, uh, and uh, which is which is to say that look, if you if you really believe in this this moral equality. Uh, of everybody uh, that, you know, that there's no, there's no natural, you know, like that, uh, that, you know, it's not the case that some people just because they're born into a certain category deserve better things in life than other people. Well, um, the, the traditional, the traditional liberal way of squaring that circle with the obvious massive uh, inequalities and outcome Mm -hmm. that surround that surround us is to say, Oh, well, uh, you don't, nobody should have, you know, should have better life outcomes than anybody else because of uh, what they're born into, but they should have it because of their effort, their hard work, their merit. Uh, and, and as Rawls and, and DeBoer point out, uh, there, there's, a, there's a deep inconsistency here because, of course, uh, what your, um, you know, your ability to, uh, to, to do well in school, to, to thrive in, not that I think these things should be equated with intelligence in any deep sense, you know, but like the particular skills that are rewarded by a certain kind of meritocratic rat race, um, those things are not entirely under your, your control either, right? You know, that, uh, that, that, that like, like any talent, right? They're, they're unevenly distributed. Mm-hmm. And so even if we did live in a perfect meritocracy, which of course, you know, we don't, right? I mean, see, uh, you know, uh, see, uh, see Don Jr. and Hunter Biden. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, but, there's a lot of people who have shown a remarkable talent for failing upwards, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So especially in the uh, Republican party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, I mean, I actually find Hunter slightly more relatable than, uh, you know, than, than, uh, than the, the, the Trump progeny since, uh, oh, since 100%. you know, oh. I, I spent enough of my life in, in, in dive bars to have met people who, who are separated from, uh, you know, plenty of people who are separated from being Hunter Biden, mostly by uh, not having been born into the kind of privilege you can coast on, you know, to, uh, to do that. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's pretty helpful having a vice president as a father, I imagine, right? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, right? But I mean, um, and honestly, right, like, just off topic, but I, I think that, um, I think that, 
the, the sort of Trump strategy of like trying to really, you know, obviously the Bidens are incredibly corrupt, obviously like claiming this is Russian disinfo or whatever is silly as hell. But, uh, uh, but also I think everybody's got some addicts and fuck ups in their families. And, uh, and I think that, I think that the sort of Trump thing of, of trying to say like calling him crackhead hunter and all that stuff, I think it's probably going to backfire. Like oh, I think it did. Say. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, cause I, I thought Biden, I'm not a big fan of him uh, for obvious right. reasons, right? And we could do a whole episode on that, right? But uh, he did come across as warm and empathetic towards his children uh, in that first debate, right? And oh, totally, and, and and in the leaked emails too, right? I mean, like 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 that sounds like. I mean, honestly, right? I mean, like all the everything else you could say about the you know getting him the patronage jobs and everything else, like his reaction to uh, to to his uh, his addict son, you know, having this kind of dark night of the soul, sounded like a you know, caring father, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's what you want. I can't imagine that's going to hurt him. Uh, but, um, but yeah. And I will say he was kind of ballsy on that, right? Rather than sitting there being like, just ignoring his son, he said, listen, my son had a serious problem uh, and he's overcome it and I'm proud of him, right? And I was like, well, that'll probably resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's, I think that's right. I think we're, you know, I mean, obviously given the op- opioid epidemic and everything else, I think, I think, uh, I think counting on um, I think counting on people to uh, to to hate addicts is probably a bad move. But in any case, I hope so. uh, what the um, what 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 all this uh, you know what those examples certainly very vividly illustrate right is that uh, is that we you know we're very 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 far from living in a genuine meritocracy. Uh, but even if we were right, like even if we somehow you know. Uh, completely eliminated all inheritance and you know god knows right like i guess like to really have like the fully realized meritocracy we'd probably have to start doing like quasi-totalitarian things like confiscating people's children so they weren't like raised and you know and more privileged than anybody else yeah Uh, so um well this is one of the things i wanted to say because um i'll I'll just like um summarize this pretty uh, quickly because uh, as you know, Rawls's book is not really very well written, right? Uh, or for that matter, very well structured. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant book, but you're never going to find anybody talking about its breathtaking prose or whatever, right? Uh, but usually he makes three arguments um, against meritocracy, right? Uh, and they're all related to this claim that a lot of the reason people get ahead or fall behind is morally arbitrary, is the term, right? Uh, and, you know, the first argument he makes is, look, you know, some people are born with natural talents, others are born uh, without them, and some people are born with deficiencies or disabilities that make it hard for them to get ahead, right? Uh, but when you take that all um, together, uh, people just win or lose a genetic lottery, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, exactly. And yeah. then the next point he makes is some people have fortunate circumstances, others don't. And, you know, that's, again, also to a certain extent a genetic lottery, and it's also predicated uh, on existing social structures for which we can claim no credit. Uh, and the last point he makes is, look, even if you do happen to have a natural talent and you develop that and you get really good at doing something and you get rewarded for that. Uh, and no small part, that's because you're lucky enough to be in a society that rewards those kinds of talents and those kinds of developed skills. And, you know, the example I give in a class that I teach on roles is think about Cristiano Ronaldo, right? Cristiano Ronaldo plays soccer and he's worth a hundred million dollars a year, apparently, because in our society we tend to value people who can play soccer really, really well. Right. Uh, if we lived in a society where that wasn't uh, valued, Christian Ronaldo would be a really talented athlete, but he probably wouldn't be a multimillionaire, right? Contrast that with somebody who, like a UN aid worker who inoculates children uh, against polio in Africa, earns about $45,000 a year, right? Uh, and we can see how much luck plays a major role 
uh, and allocating resources rather than so-called merit, right? Uh, oh, no, totally. And, and so, and like, it's, it's not that, of course, you know, some people don't have uh, talents that other people have. It's not even that they don't work hard to develop those talents. Mm-hmm. It's that even if we did do those, like, you know, nightmarish dystopian things we'd have to do to, to, make, to make our society a, a complete meritocracy, uh, then it would still be the case that, um, you know, this is Rawls's point and Deborah's point that we, that we would not be fulfilling uh, the, um, the, the fundamental premise of philosophical liberalism that people shouldn't have different life outcomes based on, um, based on, on birth, you know, based on things outside of their control uh, because some, you know, because whether it's, you know, whether it's a matter of like which caste or race, uh, you know, you're born into, or, you know, whether you're a lord or a serf, mm-hmm. or a matter of whether you have the particular, you know, combination of, of cognitive abilities that would, that would allow you to get, get ahead in a certain kind of meritocratic rat race, in all cases, you're being rewarded or punished based on the outcomes of the, uh, of the genetic lottery, uh, which is why uh, Rawls himself, who, yes, um, not a... Um, not a page turner, but uh, but uh, but a great thinker is uh, in uh, in the last part of his life. You know, when when he's writing uh, Justice is Fairness, a restatement, uh, he actually says that uh, that I don't think that that my liberal political ideals can be fulfilled under under capitalism. And he he gives a couple of different he you know he has a couple of different ideas about what a society that that would fulfill them looks like. One of which is more recognizably like what we generally call. Uh, democratic socialism, uh, you know, and and the other one I think is a little hazier, uh, you know, what he calls property owning democracy. But regardless, you know, he he thinks that having a society where some people own, um, you know, the means of production uh, and and everybody else has no realistic option except for to work for them does not, in fact, uh, fulfill what you should want if you if you take seriously. Uh, the um, if, if if you take seriously the the sort of core ideals of philosophical liberalism, uh, so you know I, I think that there's a lot more to be said about this. I think Matt and I are, are going to be doing um, a um, a discussion for about this uh, for Jacobin at some time some point, which will do a much deeper dive. Right now, um, I want to uh, to bring in uh, the other Matt uh, that uh, that we're going to be uh, that we're going to be speaking to today. Uh, so uh, Matthew Sipman is the associate editor of Commonweal Magazine. He also writes regularly for Dissent, where he serves on the editorial board. His work has been uh, published at the New Republic and the Bias, among other publications. Uh, and he's the co-host of Know Your Enemy, a podcast. Uh, about the American right. So uh, welcome, Matt. By the way, Matthew, I'm a big fan. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry, I uh, uh, had to put in my headphones. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I came in as you were introducing me, but thank you very much. It's a uh, pleasure to be speaking with both of you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so uh, the, the original reason uh, that, we, uh, that we had uh, had you on uh, is uh, because uh, one of your pieces uh, for, uh, for Dissent uh, was about uh, was called e pluribus country and it's about leftism and country music which is a uh, which is a fixation of this podcast but uh, uh, we uh, our, our numbers are growing I want this to become a movement I want it to become a I call it the sad left and uh, <laughs> this is 
or Sam and I call it the sad left. Um, yeah. So I, I hope this becomes a, a trend. Yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. That's something I want to get into. But before, uh, before David Griscom um, joins us to, uh, to talk about that, uh, while we still had uh, the other Matt here, uh, I, uh, I wanted to, I want to talk about uh, your podcast, know, uh, know your enemy because, sure. um, and I, and I thought it'd be interesting to have, uh, Matt McManus uh, stick around about this because because mm-hmm. you know Matt has written a lot about conservatism, uh, and um, and and I guess like one sort of uh, sort of way into this is just to is just to think about what the the point is right you know so like you like why um, what what are we going to learn from from engaging you know from engaging with the the right the right this uh, this uh, this way like like what's the uh, you know, like, like what's, what's the real merit of, uh, of knowing your anime politically? Well, um, you know, it, we asked ourselves that question because, uh, you know, the world doesn't necessarily need more white men in New York City uh, starting podcasts. Um, so we wanted to, and the reason we started it was because we did think we had a, a different angle into some of these questions and that this was a space that wasn't really being explored the way we want, we wanted to explore it or thought it could be explored. And there's a couple things that motivated us. One was, I just find the history of the right fascinating. Um, I'm an ex-conservative. I grew up a conservative Christian when I was in my, um, you know, late teens and, and early mid-20s, kind of college, graduate school. I was very much a part of the conservative intellectual movement. So I have firsthand knowledge of a lot of the institutions and programs and just the way they operate. And uh, so I first, that firsthand experience informs a lot of the show. Uh, but it also is something the left can learn from. Uh, I mean, the right is really good at building institutions and mentoring young people and having a pipeline of talent that they have funding for and mentoring for. And, and you know, I, I don't want to buy into the mythological version of the right where it was a small band of intellectuals and, you know, it ends up with Ronald Reagan and uh, 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 the transformation of the country. But there's a grain of truth to that. And, uh, you know, so it, those of us who are kind of on the left looking into American politics, sort of from the outside, we want the Democratic Party to move left. We hope the country moves left. I think there are some lessons from the right about how you can do that, how a kind of ideological um, movement can gain political power. Um, and of course, with Donald Trump, it's just raised a lot of questions about how we understand the last 40 or 50 years of American history. Um, and I find those debates really fascinating. Um, and maybe we can touch on some of that. But, uh, you know, I think those are some of the main reasons we started the podcast. Uh, Sam's one of my best friends, my podcast host, co-host Sam Adler-Bell. We love having these conversations and we'd have them even if we didn't have a podcast. But the history is really fascinating. The lessons the left might be able to learn is, I think, interesting and useful. And, um, uh, and we also just, we've been really blessed to have some really wonderful guests on. Um, you know, in recent episodes, we've had Jamel Bowie on, Sam Moyne. Um, it's not out yeah, yet. great. Yeah, we just uh, recorded an episode. It's not out yet with uh, uh, Rick Perlstein and, and Leon nice. Asok of the uh, Slow Burn Now uh, Fiasco podcasts. So uh, we had them on together and in conversation because uh, Leon's new podcast is about the uh, desegregation crisis in Boston in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so having Rick and Leon in conversation was really great. Um, so that's, that's what's behind the podcast. 
Yeah, great. Uh, by the way, a mandatory plug. Sam Moyne's going to be on here uh, next week, so uh, right. I look forward to that. But uh, he's a lot of fun. Yeah, he's not a, a super button-down academic. Yeah. He likes to mix it up, and uh, that's one of the things I love about him. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, interviewed, talked to him for uh, for the Jacobin YouTube channel over the summer uh, about uh, about his stuff about human rights, which was really good. But, um, oh, but yeah. I'm actually interviewing him next week uh, for zero. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, it's going to be about the Supreme Court though, because uh, I know he'd written something on dissent for that, and I thought, oh, this is neat. So why not yeah. see if he's available? Yeah, no, for sure. So, um, so, so let's. I guess like one reason uh, I think that it, it might be interesting, like at, at this moment, obviously you started the podcast a little bit earlier than this, but um, uh, you know, but uh, at this moment to think about, uh, about the American right is that even though, like you said, we don't, we don't want to like buy into the sort of narrative that the, uh, that the, that conservatism is an actual political force like popped out of the head of William F. Buckley, uh, <laughs> right. like, uh, uh-huh. Athena coming out of Zeus, uh, that, you know, very often, you know, the, the, the causation is the other way around, you know, that they, mm-hmm. uh, that they're, they're providing rationalizations, you know, for, for things, uh, that, uh, exist for completely different reasons. Uh, but, uh, these people do have real influence. Uh, and in fact, right now it, you know, looks like, uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, that, you know, that the Joe, Joe Biden, uh, is, is about to replace, uh, Donald Trump, uh, as, uh, as president. Uh, and, uh, and if that happens, then they're not, you know, they're actually going to have uh, real political influence there because there are all these people who come out of that movement, uh, who, uh, who are, um, you know, who have, who have switched parties again and, and are, are uh, and, and have gone into the Democratic Party and, you know, and, uh, and have played a big role in the campaign, you yeah. know, for, with the Lincoln Project uh, and would, you know, unfortunately, just being real about this, I think in many ways have much more influence than the left would in a future Biden administration. Yeah, I should say I'm personally like rotating my religious beliefs weekly because I'm like one God has to hear my prayer uh, to bring Trump <laughs> down, right? I got to hedge my bets that way. Um, and I, I got to say, actually, I think one of the things that's really important about when it comes to learning about the political right is you start to recognize that there are tremendous continuities in the way conservatives have thought about the world uh, that go back centuries in some cases, mm-hmm. and also tremendous continuities in the way that they think about the left, right? Uh, so one of the things that provoked me to learn about this, because actually I have a pretty similar background as other Matt. Uh, you know, I was born and raised Roman Catholic. I lived in a pretty conservative town. My parents were pretty liberal, but... I saw myself as kind of a centrist for a long time and then gradually moved uh, left, but I never lost my interest in the political right. Mm -hmm. Uh, What really provoked me to take this more seriously was Donald Trump's election. And I decided, Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to crack open my old copy of Reflections on the Revolution in France (laughs) by Evan Burke and try to figure out what some of this stuff is all about. Uh, And when you read the book, he's just lacerating in his denunciation of elitist intellectuals, people who seem aloof and removed from the common everyday man, yeah. you know, the philosoph, uh, or you can read Joseph de Maistre where he says philosophy is fundamentally a destructive force because it leads people to question things that they shouldn't mm-hmm. be questioning. And, you know, translate, you know, the lingua a little bit to cultural elites and liberal elites and all these universities. Totally. And it seems really uh, prescient, right? Uh, and I think learning about these kind of continuities can better, better arm us uh, in the intellectual battle that we have to wage against yeah. the yeah, uh, to my great surprise, one of our most uh, popular episodes um, is, it might have been the second one we did actually, uh, where we took a deep dive into Albert Hirschman's book, The Rhetoric of Reaction. 
mm-hmm. where he kind of schematizes and lays out these different types of arguments. Um, uh, and in that episode, one of the things that really stood out to me, or rather the reaction to the episode, was the number of people who said, when you identify these kinds of arguments, um, now they just see them everywhere. So, oh, yeah. Uh, so Hirschman identifies like three main types of conservative arguments, the futility thesis, the perversity thesis, and um, I'm blanking on the third. Um, um, uh, but the idea that any kind of purpose of human action meant to alleviate the human condition was going to have these unintended consequences uh, or even worse, have the opposite effect that they intend to achieve. And uh, it, when we laid out those arguments, it's kind of a, it's a, the, the book is, now uh, about 30 years old, um, I read it first in graduate school when I took a seminar with Michael Kazin, uh, who just stepped down as a dissent's co-editor. He taught a graduate seminar in U.S. conservatism. Uh, So it was just something we wanted to explore, but when we laid out those arguments, it really was striking how many people now write to us and say, we see them everywhere, and how useful it is just to kind of, you know, take a step back from the particulars of some of the arguments the right makes and see the way at a more formal kind of conceptual level, as you're saying, Matt, that for centuries they've been uh, saying mostly the same things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the examples I talk about in my book, The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, that I think is really emblematic uh, is Lord Devlin's argument with H.L.A. Hart, right? Uh, Because Hart and Devlin were getting into an argument about whether homosexuality should be decriminalized uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, Full disclosure, Hart turned out to be gay, apparently, uh, so he had a personal stake in this, as well as an ideological one. Uh, but Devlin was a Christian, and he resisted it. But one of the ways that he argued against it was by saying, the person whose views should prevail in the law are what he called the man on the Clapham Omnibus, uh, or as he puts it, the right-thinking man. And he said the interesting thing about the man on the Clapham Omnibus is he often has many prejudices and many things that he doesn't like, and he doesn't have to justify them to you, right? Uh, he just has to know that he feels these ways, and his views are shared by enough people uh, and that in itself is sufficient license for his views being the prevalent one that should be reflected in the law, right? Uh, and there's this kind of populist dimension to this um, that, of course, conservatives will never carry very far if the man on the top of omnibus decides that he wants to be a revolutionary, right? Uh, but, you know, that's quite fascinating because you see this all the time in the ways that people make arguments for Trumpism, right? Uh, and this idea that, you know, liberal elites from Harvard and Yale and so on are just out of touch and don't really know what the average person wants. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I think that maybe even in Trumpism, you get, um, well, I mean, this is not unique to that at all, right? Because I'm sure that, uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, the devil, you know, would be, you know, the same tension would exist there, right? But I mean, I, I think that maybe you can see it in the way that in Trumpism, you both get all of these pseudo-populist appeals, you know, to to the equivalent, right? You know, that... Uh, mm-hmm you know, how, how ordinary people see things and, and, uh, and, and being, you know, being anti-elite, although I also think there's a weird 180 that's happened uh, since 2016, because like Trump's main, like Trump's big thing uh, in 2016 was uh, accusing, um, accusing Hillary Clinton of, of being too close to, you know, Goldman Sachs and, you know, elitists <laughs> yeah. and you know, uh-huh. globalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and now, uh, his his main thing seems to be accusing Joe Biden of being a communist revolutionary, uh, but, uh, but there is there is this there is this anti elitist element to it. But then again, there's also this way that uh, it wasn't even inconsistent when uh, when when Trump started filling his own cabinet 
uh, with with people from the world that, that he said uh, Hillary Clinton was was too close to because mm-hmm. uh, because he said that these are people who you know they know how to they know how to do things. We're not going to appoint a poor person to uh, to to run uh, to run the economy. Uh, so so I mean I I think that at the very least that kind of um, maybe cultural anti elitism in Trump's case at times being expressed as economic anti elitism. Uh, combined with like a very deep and very unashamed attachment to economic elitism is probably also a persistent feature of at least one kind of conservatism. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to pick up on some of the things that were just said, uh, maybe uh, slightly more particularly something Matt said, but uh, I remember from my conservative days, I'm not sure if this is like in Burke's writing kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, explicitly, but the idea of a kind of implicit reason Mm. That's been kind of lost to time, but there must be some reason for these prejudices, right? And even Robert Nisbet wrote a book called Prejudices, right? Like it's, I'm not even necessarily using that in a, the most pejorative set, sense of a term. And I think we see, you know, so the task of conservative intellectuals is to say, actually, the man on the platform it's actually far more coherent than you think. <laughs> and we see the same thing with Trump. You know, he kind of blurts out these instinctive answers he has. Um, some of the instincts about trade or, you know, American workers, uh, maybe even some people on the left indulge too much and kind of thinking there's a coherence there. And you see conservative elites who themselves are elites, but pretend not to be. I saw Molly Hemingway, you know, the, uh, the erstwhile Federalist editor and uh, a very dedicated propagandist for the right on Fox News all the time. She's on Fox News. She runs this website and she's complaining about the media. It's like, you are the media, right? Yeah. Um, but, but I, that, that kind of, uh, two-step where the kind of instinctive feelings and prejudices and impulses of the masses or whoever the kind of ideal real American is, um, you know, then that's explained by, it's given a kind of veneer of intellectual sophistication by right-wing intellectuals. And we saw the same thing happening with Trump. Like the idea that there is a thing called Trumpism is absolutely absurd, right? He hasn't governed anything. He just was saying shit. Um, sorry, I don't know if I can swear on here. Um, okay. Um, but you know, and we've seen how he's governed. He hasn't, his rhetoric in 2016 has not really translated except the very worst parts of it into anything like a coherent governing program. And so all these attempts to kind of give a intellectual account of Trumpism, they just make these people look like fools. Yeah. Well, maybe we shouldn't take it either serious, either literally or seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's a really well-taken point, actually. And this is one of the things you see consistently with a lot of strains of conservatism, particularly like more Burkean strains of conservatism, right? Uh, there's this sense that there must be some kind of justification uh, for the prejudices, institutions, and mores that we have. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems, of course, is these abstract elitist intellectuals are coming along and showcasing why these are problematic or why <laughs> they don't really work for this group mm-hmm. or that group. Uh, and that's what needs to be rejected, right? Uh, but I think Ian Shapiro uh, put this really, really nicely in a lecture he gave on the kind of Burkean mindset. And you think we could talk about this when it comes to conservative mind generally, right? Uh, and it's that, you know, one person's long, proud, variable tradition uh, is another person's ideological hegemony, right? Uh, you might think, you know, that uh, the norms of a Christian patriarchal society are great, uh, unless you happen to be a woman uh, who's not actually being benefited very much from those mores, right? Uh, so there's always this kind of unusual uh, ex post facto justification for things. Yes, uh, yes. That's always in continuous motion because they always feel that they're under threat from 
people are pointing out that a lot of this just doesn't really fly and doesn't really work as well as they want to. <laughs> yeah, no, when I uh, reviewed Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, for, for yeah. Common Wheel, um, I, I, well, I really didn't like it. Um, well, uh, I think it's a really provocative book, right? I mean, Cornell uh, was like this. Well, so. yeah, it's, well, Cornell West doesn't write about everything. Um, he's close. But one of the things I said was, you know, you kind of uh, defend tradition against the acids of modernity and the, the, the kind of deconstructive effects of liberal individualism or whatever. And I don't think Deneen's account of liberalism was that persuasive to me. Uh, you know, I, I was trained in political theory. Um, it's a really, to reduce all of liberalism to possessive individualism is just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. But I, but I would say that one of the things I kind of posed to him, because uh, it was a symposium, Sam Moyne was a part of it, Brian Garson, a political theorist at Yale, and Deneen replied and didn't answer any of my questions. But I want to say, like, just defend how women were treated even 50 years ago, <laughs> right? Or defend how racial minorities were treated in this country. Uh, again, well, still today, but, you know, let's, if we keep it in the past 50 years ago, 100 years ago, like, make a defense of the way people have been treated in these traditional societies. And if you can't do it, it seems like, just like the, conser- the, the kind of conservative rhetoric about the civil rights movement, like they opposed it at the time, they were dead set against it. Now that it achieved some gains for African Americans and others in this country, um, civil rights legislation was passed. Said, oh, well, we, of course we'd be for it. So it's just constantly this like political etch a sketch being shaken that, you know, yeah. that like that, that they, yeah. that like tradition that you can't mess with because it has indecisive <laughs> sources yeah. starts yeah. now. Right. And we know yeah. that that would continue given future forms of social progress. Cause we can just look at uh, like Canada or the UK where, uh, where conservatives by and large uh, never say uh, that we should go back to having private health care. And one of the things I also point out is, of course, that uh, their interpretation of tradition is always extremely selective, right? Uh, right. So, for instance, I would be somebody to put, I would put forward to you that there's always been a radical tradition, so-called, in the United States, right? If anything, the United States is a revolutionary society, it could be more radical than that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the kind of tradition that they want to emphasize, right? right? Uh, because, of course, saying, well, this is a big part of our heritage and constantly transforming and improving uh, you know, social relations, you know, is a big thing that we should cherish. That's not what they want, right? Um, no, no. I, I think your point's really well made because that's, it's kind of the um, corollary to, to what I was just saying. Uh, it, so if you're willing to start parsing elements of a tradition, if you're a conservative who says, well, of course I don't want to go back to the days of Jim Crow. Of course I don't want to go back to, you know, uh, married women not being able to have their own checking accounts <laughs> or whatever. They, 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 they won't say that. So they're already engaged in the process of using reason to adjudicate elements of a tradition. It's, oh, yeah. not, it's not this kind of unreflective thing just handed down to them. They've made decisions about which parts of the tradition or what, what it means to be a traditional society or, again, which, which aspects of a tradition they, they want to still adhere to now or think are really relevant to our current situation. So they're already picking and choosing, and that means they're using reason Contra tradition in some ways. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I'm just going to make this kind of uh, snide point, which is uh, I see all these people like Ben Shapiro and so on talking about how it is that nobody respects Western civilization anymore and people don't read the classics. Uh, but of course, you know, they always seem to exclude people like Karl Marx uh, or the socialist tradition, you know, from the Western canon, uh, which is, you know, really quite telling because one of the things I point out is what could possibly be more Western than Marxism, right? You know, it's German philosophy combined with French politics and English political economy, right? Um, 
Yeah. And it's just, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, like I always think that's hilarious. Like when, you know, somebody like, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson or Ben, you know, if you're talking about defending the West, <laughs> and they mostly seem to want to defend it against things like Marxism and feminism that of course have <laughs> deep roots in the Western tradition. Seem yeah, like if yeah, you really yeah. like if you well, really cared about defending the West against non Western influences, you'd spend all of your time like worried about Buddhism or something like that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and to, to that exact point, they're often defending the West against Islam, say, or, you know, or radical Islamism, uh, because of the way Islam treats women and, um, you know, minorities in Islamic societies, religious or other kinds of minorities right. in society. So they're, they're kind of, it's, it's just, you know, well, when you really start thinking about it, it's enough to drive you mad. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, Matt, other Matt mentioned uh, Ben Shapiro earlier, right? You know, for my sins, I did read his uh, his book. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> you must have really been a bad, <laughs> some, a lot of sins to have to read that one. For yeah, me. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the right side of uh, the right side of history as yeah. a um, yeah. I don't know. Probably this this should be like. I'd, I'd have to spend a lot of time being psychoanalyzed to like figure out why I do this to myself. But, uh, <laughs> but, I do, but, uh, but in that book, it, it's amazing because he's very explicit about what he means by the West, uh, which is like, you know, he's very repetitive about it over the course of the book, which is, oh God, yeah. uh, which is uh, Judeo Christian, uh, you know, uh, religion, uh, and uh, which of course means that he gets to spend like 99% of it talking about, you know, Christian religion, but you know, but it, it doesn't, uh, but for obvious reasons in his hands, it's, you know, Judeo Christian uh, and uh, Greek reason. Uh, and, and then there's like never any grappling with the fact that if there's anything that he means to exclude from the West, it's clearly the, the, the Muslim world. Uh, uh, but, why does that not count as a, as, as some, I mean, like, like this, as like a product of those influences, like it just never says. Oh, I know. And it's really kind of, what's kind of frustrating also is again, how he just decides that everything that was worthwhile in Western civilization more or less uh, ended in, in, you know, the 1780s, right? Pretty much everyone <laughs> after that is just one slow process of decline. Uh, you know, can't, you know, we need to chuck him. We need to chuck Hegel. We need to chuck Marcuse. All that just needs to go, right? Uh, but I think to the point that Matt made uh, about the Why Liberalism Failed book, because this connects nicely with what um, we were talking about earlier, Ben, I think that the problem I have with the book is exactly the one that you did, right? Which is that even Anine seems uncomfortable with going whole hog and just saying we should do away with the liberal system because he tries to qualify his comments by saying things like, well, of course, we should keep some of the historical achievements of liberalism, but it's also still very problematic. And I'm like, well how many of the achievements of liberalism do you want to keep before you just want to keep liberalism? Right. I mean, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, it's funny, actually, I don't know if you saw it, it just came out a day or two ago. Uh, Harvard magazine did a profile of their uh, famous uh, alumnus, Ross Douthat. Um, and oh, no, I it. yeah, it just came out. So there's no, no reason you would have necessarily read it yet, but uh, being the, you know, absurdly, obsessed person I am with these questions. I, I immediately read it. And Deneen's one of the people they talked to. Mm-hmm. And he says that Douthat's actually the real conservative because mm-hmm. he's willing to sort of muddle through and he's a little less hostile in that totalizing way to liberalism in the broadest, best sense of the term. Um, he's not, he doesn't think we can radically change American society um, in a, a quick and speedy way. Um, so he's the real conservative and indeed ad- admitted to being the more radical right wing. I don't know if he would adopt the term 
right wing, but you know, he's the more radical figure in comparison to someone like Douthat, which I thought was an interesting confirmation um, of what you're saying. But that's but, but you're you're getting at the key thing. So, do you, what, what part of liberalism do you like? The assertion of human equality, the uh, understanding that like constitutional government. Um, in which citizens have rights uh, that the state can't infringe on is like, what, what part of it are you, do you really not like? And it just serves as this kind of placeholder for everything he hates in the world. And um, the other thing too, is the very peculiar agency they attribute to liberalism. Liberalism demands liberalism asserts like, no, yeah. human beings have agency. And in the course of liberal political history, there are different alternatives. Franklin Roosevelt was a liberal too, right? It's not all, um, you know, Hobbesian individualists uh, just wanting to have as much sex as possible and, uh, you know, viewing themselves as atomized individuals making money, right? Like there, there's, there's a lot of different strands to liberalism. And I would just commend as a welcome counterpoint to Deneen's book, Helena Rosenblatt's uh, The Lost History of Liberalism, which deals with French liberalism a great deal and the kind of moral urgency and, and really capacious sense of what citizenship demands and, um, uh, just, yeah, that it's not an amoral individualism, but there's something, I mean, the term liberal, liberality, generosity, right? Like there's a whole, just the name itself speaks to alternative possibilities than a lot of the people now who, uh, you know, um, make a lot of money and get to travel the world complaining about liberalism. Um, uh, talk about, the reason, the reason, Rod, sorry, one quick point, Rod Dreher blocked me on Twitter because uh, there was this delicious moment where Deneen was in Italy, and I think Rod might have been in Australia uh, <laughs> giving lectures about their books. And I said, you know, the best way to see the world is to be a localist, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, this actually is a really good way that I could actually segue uh, from the earlier discussion we had, right, which is mm -hmm. that um, there are a lot of people I know on the political left who also uh, characterize themselves as kind of radically anti-liberal. Uh, and I'm sometimes sympathetic uh, to the criticism people make, uh, like I said to Ben before you came on, if we're talking about getting rid of neoliberalism, I'd be all for it, right? Sure. Uh, but there are other things about liberalism that I think we definitely would want, even in a left-wing future, right? Uh, respect for rights, as you pointed out, right? Respect for the human equality of all individuals, right? Uh, I think that we'd want to make sure that freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and so on are all you know, maintained, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Uh, yeah. And it's sometimes unclear to me what exactly people mean uh, when they're talking about a radical critique of liberalism, because the most radical critique of liberalism I know is the Marxist critique. Uh, but it's radical precisely because it's dialectical, right? And it says that yes. any society that's going to come after capitalism is inevitably going to be stamped uh, by the features of the old. Uh, mm -hmm. And that means we shouldn't think of it as just some kind of tr transformative rupture, uh, but rather mm -hmm. a certain kind of continuity uh, characterized by a revolutionary break, right? Yes. Uh, and I think that's a more appropriate and historical and realistic way to look at it. Yes, no, definitely. And uh, I just want to use my trademark phrase. Um, uh, I want to go beyond liberalism, but not behind it. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say too, liberalism predates capitalism. Mm -hmm. So you see in the, in like 19th century French liberalism, the social question arises and they had to figure out what to do. Right. So it's, it's not set in stone. Liberalism's relationship to um, other traditions or, or emerging phenomenon is not set in stone. And um, I would just say that I think the weakness of liberalism, because it predated capitalism, it, that is the weak spot. Like, mm -hmm. you know, can liberalism actually confront the worst um, ravages of capitalism? Yeah. And I think, you know, how I would want to modify liberalism or my critique of liberalism would mainly be in the economic dimension. Um, 
uh, or in those those kinds of uh, no, for uh, sure, for those sure. kinds of questions are the ones I would want to ask. But it's not a wholesale rejection of liberalism. The dialectical uh, move you want to make is one I would agree with. And I, I just since I plugged a Commonwealth piece earlier, I want to plug a dissent piece. Uh, Irving Howe's classic essay, uh, socialism, mm-hmm. socialism and liberalism: Articles of Conciliation. He, I mean, you. There was a paragraph there that you basically just provided a wonderful explication of that I. That that's always meant a lot to me that essay because I think it's as close in one place as I if I would point someone to one thing to read that would get at some of how I think about liberalism as someone who's a I mean I would describe myself as a socialist a democratic socialist um, that would be a really good starting point. Yeah, no, for sure, and like you also when people do talk about you know like this kind of wholesale. Uh, rejection of liberalism before you came on, um, you know, I was talking to other Matt about uh, two pieces that he'd written for Jacobin uh, about the relationship between Marxism and philosophical liberalism that I was saying, I think some people had kind of a Pavlovian reaction to the appearance of the word liberalism uh, there. Uh, but yes. you can ask some of the same questions there that you would about Patrick Deneen, right? It's like, okay, so like if we achieve the sort of social society that we'd like, mm-hmm. Which of the following do you no longer want, right? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. you know like, and I think the same points apply. I want to um, welcome onto the show earlier than usual, uh, friend and comrade uh, David Griscom. Uh, so who? Um, uh, Matt, uh, I, sh- I should say that since the uh, the second episode of the show, uh, David has uh, come on to do a segment at the end of the show called uh, Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Nice, um, nice. <laughs> we, uh, we, you know, I, I usually at that point in the show switch from uh, from beer to whiskey since you, you came on and started out with whiskey. Oh, nice. I didn't know what the rules were today. Yeah, that's, that's what I have too. Uh, I might be less coherent yeah. than usual, but... Yeah. Uh, and, I, and um, I'm, I'm jonesing for a cigarette, too, actually. <laughs> hey, it's 5 p.m. It's happy hour, right? <laughs> yeah, it's Saturday, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, and, um, and and so, so I wanted, uh, you know, what David to come on, you know, a little earlier than, uh, than usual this, this week to, uh, to talk to you about that, uh, that dissent essay, um, which, which, I think, uh, which I think ties in. I, I actually think there are some interesting points of connection with what we were just talking about. In fact, especially one of the things that you we started off talking about, uh, which uh, was when you were going through these like kind of themes that run through uh, conservative thought, uh, and how one of them uh, is this uh, futility thesis. You know that 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 because of of human nature being what it is, maybe uh, that that you know we that like trying to to. Uh, to create a better, more compassionate, you know, more equal society is, is just pointless. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, when I'm thinking about like why it is that we, uh, that we started doing, you know, doing this segment, um, you know, and, and why this, this became such a big part of the show. Um, you know, I was, I was talking to, uh, Kale Brooks, who's our, um, producer at, uh, Jacobin, about this the other day and I said, yeah, I guess, I guess maybe two of the most distinctive things about the, the podcast were all of the debates and the, uh, and the country music stuff. Uh, and, uh, and I think I was thinking about why that is. And I think part of that is about uh, providing a balance uh, that, mm. uh, that, you know, since so we will do the, uh, the dry uh, logic chopping, but, you know, also, also want to get some, some of the, uh, the, the sort of, 
dimensions of human experience, you know, that, that aren't, are, are captured by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and part of it has to do, I think, with the time period, you know, because we started the show uh, over the summer, you know, shortly after our friend and comrade Michael Brooks passed. And, uh, and it's, and in a lot of ways, right, personally and politically, you know, it was, it was a pretty bleak uh, period. Mm-hmm. And yeah. <laughs> we're just coming out of this. Um, and, you know, certainly as far as the left goes, right. You know, in the last year or so coming out of some very deep defeats, um, that, you know, certainly with the the Bernie Sanders campaign, certainly with what happened with the labor party in the UK. And so, you know, something I kind of have pushed on the show with varying degrees of jokiness and seriousness, seriousness (laughs) is that if you're kind of committed to a long-term left project, uh, you shouldn't, uh, you know, you shouldn't let yourself get too emotionally, uh, you know, vulnerable to living and dying, you know, with the, with the daily news cycle. Uh, yeah. And so I said, you know, instead mm-hmm. what you should do is uh, uh, read Marx, drink whiskey, and uh, listen to country music because uh, uh, that'll, <laughs> that'll do a lot more to help you get through all of this. Uh, and, uh, but, but I think that, I think that as, as far as the futility thesis goes, I, I think there's an interesting point of connection to some of what you say in the essay and some of what you said in the Know Your Enemy um, uh, episode that, that you did uh, kind of about the essay and, and about related mm-hmm. subjects, uh, about the sort of dimensions of human experience that you, that you tend to, this tended mm-hmm. to be emphasized in a lot of country music and how to think about that in relationship mm-hmm. with those claims about futility and, and, and what political change uh, is for. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and and so I, I guess maybe sort of before before diving into to some of the fun details that you talk about in the essay <laughs> and, and on the here, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts about about that at the beginning because what a lot of uh, conservative uh, critics of the left will say is, hey, you guys clearly like live in some sort of fantasy world where we're all going to become like wonderful, beautiful, compassionate people, but you know that's uh, that's not the way that the real world is. Uh, mm-hmm. People are people are cruel, people mess up, uh, you know, and, and so, um, you know, we're, we're just never going to, you know, turn that brook, you know, that broken timber, uh, into, uh, into what you think we will. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I, and I think something you and I share is, is, is being kind of obsessed with, with thinking that that's exactly the wrong way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. uh, sh- shall I uh, jump? Yeah, off? yeah. If you want okay. to, yeah. No, no. Uh, well, just as a for listeners, viewers who haven't read my essay yet, um, I I'd actually wanted to write a piece on country music and politics for a while, and I just didn't know how to do it. Um, do you remember when the movie Blaze came out uh, a couple years ago? Yeah. Uh, the essay I wrote for Descent actually that started when. I was tweeting about going to see a showing of it at the uh, uh, IFC here in, in, in mm. New York um, where they had uh, um, actually Charlie Sexton was there, like oh, the, the cast and, and Ethan Hawke, the producer, they were all there. And so they took questions after the show and it was great. And Michael said, Michael Kazin, the editor of Descent said, Matt, you really should finally write something about country music and politics because he's a bit of a country fan too. And I just didn't know how to do it. Um, I know that I'm a leftist and I love country music and that, I meet people like you all the time who have those same passions. Um, but country music has this reputation as being right wing, right? We'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way sort of, sort of <laughs> vibe. Right. And there are a lot of reactionary figures in the history of country music. 
So I just didn't quite know how to get at it. And then when the Ken Burns country music documentary came out, that was the fodder I needed. And in particular, one of my best friends, a guy named Cole Stangler, a, a labor reporter who now lives in Paris, he interviewed Ken Burns for, for the magazine I edit, Commonweal. And in that interview, Ken Burns said, all my documentaries are about the same thing. Who are we? Right? And so there's a, a very kind of collective way, like who are we in terms of like what is America? And that's where I don't like the Ken Burns style of sort of Obama-esque, uh, you know, arc of history bending toward justice sort of vibe. Um, talented individuals can overcome prejudice and discrimination. And right, I, I get at all this in the essay. But then I, I, the more I thought about it, I realized that who are we could actually be answered a very different way. Meaning, who are we as human beings? Like, what kind of creatures are we? And, and when you really drill down into the stories of someone like uh, Johnny Cash or George Jones, um, and not just them, you realize how many of these guys and women were drunks, addicts, fuck-ups of various kinds. I mean, we always forget that, um, you know, Johnny Cash wrote, I Walk the Line about his first wife. <laughs> you know, he didn't write that about June, you know, June Carter. Uh, so I, I thought that really where my connection or what I got out of country music was not the right-wing political message that's explicit in some songs, but that actually there's a really rich and complicated view of human nature, if I can use such a grandiose term, mm -hmm. uh, that, is, that is at work in the music, and that, that actually relates very deeply to how I, how, what I ground my left politics in, which is not the right-wing caricature of a Promethean human perfectibility, um, right, that, that um, it's, it's just kind of onward and upward, this naive view of progress. That's not how I think at all. And I realized that those elements of country music, the darker side of our, our natures, the, the, our ability to hurt each other and be cruel to each other and have everything we love kind of, you know, slip through our fingers and, and disappear because of one wrong decision or a bad break or a, uh, a, a terrifying diagnosis or whatever it might be, that kind of human vulnerability and frailty really is what my left politics is grounded in. And it has nothing to do with a, uh, uh, again, a, a, a Promethean perfectibility or naive view of progress at all. I think that's really well put. And actually, this is something I tell uh, to my students all the time. Um, so I, I had an article that came out, I guess, just this past week in Arc Digital, uh, criticizing Thomas Sowell, right? And Thomas Sowell makes exactly this point um, from a conservative perspective. He says, the thing about conservatives is we have what he calls a tragic vision of life, uh, where people are irredeemably flawed and they're responsible for their problems and there's no fixing them, right? Uh, and I was thinking about this because I was like, you know, I've never sat there and thought to myself that I was in the business of trying to perfect anyone, right? Mm. Uh, Terry Eagleton makes yeah. this point really well in his book, Materialism. He says, look, in the liberal socialist or democratic social society to come, there are people who are still going to get fucking, you know, a lot of problems in their life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to have bad relationships. They're going to, you know, mess up with important people in their lives. Uh, we're not trying to fix that because we can't fix it, right? We're just trying to make sure that if you do end up in a bad situation, uh, there's something there to catch you, right? And you're not going to need to worry about whether or not you're going to be able to pay your rent or whether or not you're going to have a job or whether or not, you know, there's going to be clean drinking water, you know, coming through the taps. No, for sure. I mean, like, I, I look, I remember uh, one of my uh, all-time uh, favorite, uh, you know, one-line summations, you know, of, of certainly the kind of politics that I care about comes from uh from from amber frost from from chapa trap house when she was talking about how um 
Uh, one of the best things about going from being a meritocratic liberal to being a, a socialist is that you can stop morally means testing people in your head to see who's good <laughs> yeah. enough to, uh, yeah, to deserve yeah. your help. You could just say every bastard deserves better, uh, which <laughs> yeah. is certainly yeah. something uh-huh. something that I'd go sign and like yeah. actually you know, and then like a sort of maybe more like pretentiously intellectual version of it that like I've argued in. Uh, I had a, ja- a Jacobin article called uh, Power Corrupts. That's why socialists want to democratize society. And, and oh, that was um, a good one, yeah. A yeah. previous one along the same lines in uh, Arc Digital mm-hmm. called Socialism and Human Nature, where, where my claim is, look, to the, to the extent that you have this this tragic vision of, of people uh, and, and you think that people are going to be, you know, cruel and selfish and, you know, whatever circumstances they're put in. And, of course, obviously, I think there's some there's some truth to that. Uh, I think there's some truth to the opposite. I think that like trying to sort out like exactly how bad or good we are, you know, is something I certainly don't feel equipped to do. Mm. Uh, but, um, but to the extent that you do take those concerns seriously to me, that, that, that gives us a reason to want a society where power is distributed as equally as possible to, to diminish our ability to, uh, treat each other like a, like a small child, you know, like, you know, torturing an insect in a, you know, in a jar. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Like I always say, right, I'm perfectly expected in the democratic social society to come. There are going to be plenty of people who sit there like a Dostoevsky character, wondering about the bigger problems in the world and why life doesn't seem to go the way it is. Uh, but like I said, you know, they'll have heating and they'll have a nice house and they'll not have to worry about, you know, whether or not they're going to keep the job down uh, while they're in the midst of an existential crisis. Right. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Oh, sorry, David, go. Oh, no, I just wanted to add, uh, you know, because I, I really like your piece a lot, uh, Matthew, you know, how it sort of was talking about the universal aspect of country music. But I did want to make it a little particular as like the native Texan or Southerner on the, on the stream, you know, because for me, country music, so like it definitely is universal, but there's so much of it to me that is like that Southern culture, that's Texas culture, obviously, you know, contributes mm-hmm. greatly to it. And it's something to me in my politics that I always get a lot of into a lot of fights with people, especially like Yankees or like lefties who aren't from the South. You know, they, they have these arguments like, you know, we shouldn't run progressives in South Carolina. We shouldn't run, you know, try to win, you know, mm-hmm. radical um, policies in the South because it's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think about, you know, a lot of it to me is something that I had a really great professor at university, an Iranian professor, who was explaining like why Leninism was so popular in Iran, um, you know, pre-revolution. He says, well, we didn't have any choice. In the sense that, like, you know, Lenin says that, like, you know, you have to take your own conditions and you, have, you can create revolution on your own um, versus one that's more, like, structuralist, that, like, you have to wait till you get this kind of highly developed liberal society before you can have revolution. I feel the same way about the South in the sense it's just, like, if I want to see any change in my lifetime, like, I have to believe that the people in it, um, you know, can do it. And, like, for me, those are people like Guy Clark and Willie Nelson, um, yeah. you know, along with, you know, some of the more reactionaries. But it's just, like, country music, for me, what I really love about it um, as a kind of product of to show people who aren't from the part of the world that I'm from a, a kind of window, like look at how rich this tapestry of experience and perspective is of all of these different people, mm-hmm. which there really is not that kind of media um, that is able to deal with the Texas and the South in general, that really gives people that window into like the full, yeah. the fullness mm-hmm. of life of people from there. Yeah. So, well, Sorry. can I hop in? I, I just Please, one yeah. quick comment on that is uh, my, I sort of began my dissent essay by having the suspicion that all my friends in New York who love country music and are on the left, but did not grow up working class. It's Mm -hmm. that window into these different parts of the country or different ways of life that, that that is part of the appeal, not all of it. Cause I Mm. mean, come on guy Clark, he's just a poet. So (laughs) for sure, right. You don't have to, there's no, that was a lawyer too. Yeah. There's no, there's no real like 
ulterior motive or, or different motive you need other than just loving beautiful lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say I did grow up working class and uh, I talked about that a little at the start. Talked about my grandfather, especially um, his Conway Twitty records. And I, I'm still pondering the effect on my psyche of hearing slow hand at like 12 years old, you know, on the uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> coming off the record player. But I would just say I, I grew up in a part of Pennsylvania where you, you probably know the famous phrase from James Carville that there's Pittsburgh in the West, Philadelphia in the East, and in between is Alabama. So I, <laughs> I and my neighbor growing up had a Confederate flag sticker mm. you know, on his truck. And this is two hours from Gettysburg. And I wow. still, there's, there's still something like, you know, that my mind doesn't quite grasp about that. But I, I feel a sort of sympathy with, I, I lived in Virginia for five years when I taught at the University of Virginia. I lived in Charlottesville and my best friends were singers and songwriters. Um, the line I, the great line I, I borrowed from my friend James Wilson, who's the lead singer of Sons of Bill, which I want to give them a shout out. Um, he, he had the great line, if it ain't sad, it probably isn't true. Um <laughs> So I, I, I'm disagreeing with you, David, and, yeah. uh, but I, I do feel a certain cultural, I don't know, similarity or some kind of resonance with, uh, I, I don't consider myself a Yankee in the capital Y. I'm, uh, you have to understand, if you know me, I use that word very liberally to describe I know. anybody who's not. I know, and I, and I, I know what you mean, but yeah. I don't think I'm quite one. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm probably the most uh, the most Yankee person here uh, <laughs> since uh, since you know I I, uh, I grew up in uh, um, you know I, I grew up in a in a college town in Mid Michigan uh, you know which which is actually um, is actually north of the nearest Canadian border crossing mm-hmm. uh, so uh, so it doesn't get much more northern than that uh, I'm, I'm you know. Obviously, Matt's Canadian, but uh, but then but I think also from a, a slightly Alabama part of Canada, uh, but uh, and, um, you know certainly certainly in my case, right? I mean, this wasn't you know this wasn't something that you know like I had the experience like you talk about at the beginning of the essay of, of listening to uh, to your grandfather you know play uh, you know play this music you know as out working in the car or whatever that uh, that. In in my case, you know, like sort of warming up to this this kind of music happened much more slowly, and and mm-hmm. uh, and, and as an adult, um, you know, uh, largely as as a result of um, of of uh, of drinking with people who, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, who who had an appreciation for it, you know. So there's a my friend Dan from uh, from from when I lived in Florida, you know, used used to say, you know, it's like because we'd often just listen to rock music. But it's like, yeah, there's a certain point of drunk at which only classic country, you know, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, then, and, and then much more recently in my life, you know, um, like times like a year or two ago when I was I was crashing on David Griscom's couch in uh, in Brooklyn, and you know, and mm-hmm. and he'd put on Blaze Foley, uh, you know, that's that's definitely, um, yeah, you know, all that stuff kind mm-hmm. of like led me to uh to more uh to more of an appreciation of it and then maybe you know probably especially more uh lately but there are a lot of places we could take this but first i want to really lower the tone of the conversation and uh (laughs) and uh so uh so this is this is not a deep political point it's just too awesome not to mention i listened to uh i listened to your uh know the know your enemy episode about this mm-hmm. and uh you you had a story about uh about uh, <laughs> willie nelson that i think has to be shared as part of this conversation yeah well uh i i will share that story by request uh 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 for your audience uh and so when i was it was i was in college uh willie nelson played 
in a field in Brookfield, Ohio. It was one of these like local music festivals and all the other acts were kind of local, either cover bands or aspiring country artists. And Willie was the headliner. So we got there really early and had great seats, like down in front, dead center. And for some reason I had worn a cowboy hat, um, which I, when Willie came on, I mean, I just want to say the whole experience was bizarre. Uh, the, the th things I saw, I, I, I just don't want to convey them because I don't know if I could talk about them in a way that's like, respectful <laughs> enough of the people involved. Um, but it was quite a day. Uh, but I threw my hat up on stage and lo and behold, Willie picks it up, puts it on and wears it for maybe five or six songs. Wow. And uh, so that was cool. And I was, this is, remember, I'm 39 years old. So I'm in college. My phone didn't have a camera on it. I didn't bring it any kind of camera. And so I kind of, you know, cry out to God, you know, Willie Nelson's wearing my cowboy hat and I can't capture this. And this drunk woman beside me from Ohio said, Oh, I'll, I'll, don't worry about it. I'll take a photo. And so she <laughs> takes the photo, takes a couple photos. And I said, well, how can you get this to me? And I literally on her red solo cup, I, with a magic marker, I wrote my name and address. And a week later they show up with the negatives. And uh, but that's not where the story ends. That would be a good ending for it. I get the photos of Willie wearing my cowboy hat. But the real twist is that after five or six songs, Willie takes off, throws it back into the crowd. And, you know, maybe it was the Holy Spirit. I don't know. It, it floats back to one person, maybe or two people over from me. And this, this young woman who was incredibly high, I don't know what she was on, um, <laughs> high, drunk, whatever. She was really in a different dimension than I was. Um, she grabs it and I say, Hey, that's my cowboy hat. And she goes, no, it's not. And I, I there was part of me said, well, you know, I don't blame her for not believing it's my cowboy hat, but, uh, it, it really is. And she said, no, I'm, I'm keeping it. And I said, well, you know, I really think Willie would want me to have it back. <laughs> and she, she, she pauses and she said, you know, I think you're right. Hands it over. <laughs> and so I, I, I walked out of that concert with my cowboy hat back, cowboy hat back, and then a week later getting the photos. And so it was, uh, you know, the universe smiled on me that day. That's a really good story, I gotta say. Yeah, and I really, I really, it's, it, this is a truncated, censored version. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, this, I, I'm, I'm just not gonna say more. Leave it okay? to the imagination, I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I have a quick question for you though, actually. Because yeah. um, growing up in Canada, Neil Young um, is, you know, one of my heroes, right, mm -hmm. as he is for many Canadians, right, since, you now we tend to cherish our exports, uh, particularly our musical <laughs> exports. Uh, but, you know, I also like Leonard Skinner, right, um, mm -hmm. and actually I have a lot of good memories with Skinner, particularly Freebird, right, some of my first dates, it was a pretty constant thing, you know, when I wanted to set the mood and stuff. Uh, but then I finally started listening to Southern Man, and I found out about the kind of rivalry that went on between the two of them, mm -hmm. and the political dimensions of that. And it was so disappointing, because I was like, you know, I've never actually listened to the lyrics of their songs all that much, but, and, or, or noticed that they have a Confederate flag at some of their concerts and stuff, but that's really a damn shame, mm -hmm. right? So, do you have any thoughts about that? Like, do you ever hear about the kind of dispute? Well, I, I mean, yes. I, I mean, I, I know the basics of the dispute. I, I can't comment it, on it too directly. Uh, but I, one thing you said, uh, one of my favorite albums is uh, the Drive-By Truckers Southern Rock Opera. And there's a great song called The Duality of the Southern Thing. Right. Uh, or that's one of the phrases they, they use. And I just, and, and there's a great song about George Wallace. And even, I don't think most people know that late in his life, some of the shifts he made and um, 
uh, you know, that his wife then was elected governor. And uh, obviously I'm not defending George Wallace at all, but I think when the, what struck me about that album is they get the, the odd tensions and, you know, contradictions and dualities and that even someone as odious as George Wallace, why was he so beloved? And what, you know, what was the arc of his career? And again, I want to be very careful to say I'm not defending George Wallace, but it's coming from Southerners, the way they talk about things like, as you point, a Confederate flag at a, at a concert, something that, you know, obviously is, I mean, I saw the truckers in Richmond in like 2005 and their backdrop was a Confederate flag mm-hmm. and coming that still was the kind of thing that really did not sit well with me. And, you know, so there's no excusing any of this, but I, but I, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of interested in the way the music is an entry point into people's, well, as I put it in the, in my dissent essay, people's contradictory and complex lives. And that, that if you live it, I think you have a, an insight into why people are gravitate towards certain things, certain symbols, certain, political figures, why sometimes even those figures are more complicated than maybe a, a, a typical narrative would lead you to believe. And uh, so I, that's maybe not a great answer to your question, but I, it just made me think of that album of Trucker. Mm-hmm. And I think that album is a great way of saying that like, yes, you can look at the South as backward and racist and this and that, but there's also other elements. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of reducing things to a simplistic narrative. What I like about country music or related acts like drive-by truckers. We, I don't know what you'd call them, alt country, country rock, mm-hmm. whatever. You know, the music is a way into these things that I think direct political arguments, uh, the music captures things, straightforward arguments don't always capture. And I, again, I hope the complexity I'm pointing to is not seen as an excuse for um, overlooking the nasty parts or, you know, I'm not trying to rehabilitate anyone or anything. I'm just saying... Music is interesting to me for that reason. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I think 100% it makes sense, okay. right? And it's the same problem I have, right? Like, I like the Smiths, for example, right? Uh, and Morrissey recently has decided that he's going to become an even bigger jerk than normal and become increasingly a Nazi, right? And kind of made me that question, like, wow, can I still like this music? Uh, mm. And I decided, yeah, I can, right? There's a way of separating the politics from, uh, from the man and all that stuff, and then the man from his music. Uh, but it's really difficult, right? You have to do some kind of mental parsing. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it frustrates me because if you just want to enjoy something in a very pure sense, it's not always fun, uh, if you want to put it that way. You just have to go through this rigmarole of thinking like, well, why do I like that? What symbolic role does it play? And that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's if I can make one more point, David, I feel like you look like you want to hop in. But I, I would say like there is a difference like, because the drive-by truckers are not themselves – reactionary or right wing or anything. So they were just writing out of their experiences growing up in Alabama. Mm. Um, so I, uh, although they did release a statement, I think over the summer, uh, kind of apologizing for the band's name, right? Cause drive by like a drive by shooting, like mm. it's, it has certain, you know, implications or resonances. And so they, they, you know, kind of admitted that, you know, now they might not name the band that uh, exactly. But um, so that, you know, to me, those are, it's it's a complicated question in that sense. Like there's the the views of the artist, and and sometimes again a band like the Truckers, they're not a a right wing um, band at all. But they're but they're writing out of experiences that include growing up amid you know racism, injustice, et cetera, and and kind of dealing with 
you know, the, com- the complexity is that because we all love, we all love people who hold abhorrent views. We know people who can be quite kind. I mean, we saw this with, you know, the, the whole debate about Joe Biden, these, these text messages, right? So someone who's mm-hmm. extremely generous and loving to his son at a period when he's bottoming out from addiction um, and yet authorized, you know, or, or wrote a crime bill that would subject other people who get in trouble with drugs or whatever, have struggled with addiction, you know, resign them to a different fate. So I, again, I just point to what I love about music is the way it can get at these complexities in a way that more straightforward arguments and political rhetoric sometimes doesn't. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like jumping on the, the Confederate flag question is not something I want to do because it's like, it's very settled, right? The Confederate flag represents yeah. what it represents, mm-hmm. you know, I think sometimes when you look back and you watch things, though, from the 60s and 70s, you do have to understand that there's a bit of complexity. For example, you know, like the Young Patriots organization in Chicago, which worked with the Black Panthers um, to fight against Mayor Daley, like they wore the Confederate flag on their armband. Right. Um, that's not to excuse it because they the members of that organization have now come back and have apologized for it. It's just like, you know, maybe looking at it and understanding that, you know, there's, it's not that there's complexity. It's just, is that like sometimes the intention gets muddled. Um, but that being said, I think going on today is a different uh, question. And, yeah. you know, it's funny to see like the flag question, uh, Jamie, I got in a fight with, uh, I hope this isn't getting too off the rails, Ben. Um, I got on a Twitter <laughs> fight with this guy who runs a blog called saving country music, which I was very excited to to read when I found out about it. Um, but he was writing an article basically saying like, oh, what's one of your favorite country music artists is a conservative or a progressive. And he, <laughs> um, he tells this story about how Jamie Johnson, who people who don't know is a really great, uh, you know, contemporary country music artist, I think actually in the old school outlaw style, yeah. um, who shut down a concert of his, this is probably like three, four years ago, um, because somebody in the audience was waving a, uh, um, thin blue line, yeah, you know, American flag. Mm-hmm. And he shut down the concert because I don't know what kind of flag that is. Um, if you don't get it out of here, I'm not playing anymore. Um, anyways, the, the author of this, this piece who runs a pretty famous like country music um, blog was saying, oh, well, look how right wing Jamie Johnson is because he's defending the American flag because he's saying <laughs> that, you know, it's this like deviation for the red, white, and blue is uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> offensive to him as a soldier. Um, you know, so it's it's just it's it's a very difficult thing to deal with like the kind of symbols that go on around country music because it's so much a part of the very incoherent symbols that you see in like working class and rural America. Um, Watch is why I don't know. Uh, I don't want to dive into that. I think that'd be a little bit of a distraction. No. But it's just like you know, it is like such a part. Like country music is a fun thing to analyze and to be a part of the culture because it very much is in touch with a significant amount of the population that doesn't get sort of analyzed or talked about seriously. Yeah. So, so, so I kind of wanted to, to pivot from that yeah. and from uh, Matt's surprisingly strong defense of George Wallace that, that I, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm, I, I, I know Liz Brunig, uh, you know, we're not like best friends or anything, but I, I know she took flack for saying, you know, something about George Wallace it was like, well, maybe some people liked him because he thought they shouldn't go hungry. Yeah. Uh, and that exists alongside his horrible racist views. And yeah. so I do not, I do not want to be canceled for this. I'm reiterating, I'm not defending any, um, any of this, but, uh, well, can I say one thing, Ben, that yes, maybe will help you kind of move us beyond yep. this impasse? Yep. Yep. Um, uh, I think it's, and it gets to, you know, I, I I'm reiterating this, but, mm. uh, even if the Confederate flag is not complex, I think the people who might, sometimes 
wield it are. Mm-hmm. People are complex is what I'm saying. And I, I, when I said in my essay that I was partly pushing back against, say, um, you know, the, the, the right-wing caricature of a Promethean sort of perfectibility progressivism, um, that was, that's true. But I'm also speaking to the left <laughs> in a way and uh, would say something like people are complex and uh, that should not be an excuse for, well, excusing really terrible, you know, using racist symbols, you know, being, being racist kind of, you know, uh, I'm not defending any of that, but I would say that because people are complex, we need to think harder. And I mean more maybe a sort of like progressive, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, modern progressive sort of, sim- I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily talking solely about the left here, but if people are complex, what does forgiveness mean? Right. Actually, I think this is why Michael Brooks called that, you know, what did he say? Uh, you know, kind of people hard on systems uh, yeah. resonates with me. Yeah. Right? Because yes. mm-hmm. everybody's got a story, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean that we should forgive everyone because I think some people are probably yeah. irredeemable. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to win a lot of converts by being an asshole. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, well, just, I mean, that, that kind of, if people are complex and country music gives us a way into that and we see people fuck up again and again, uh, including the artists we love sometimes, uh, uh, you know, what, what, does, what does forgiveness mean or what does it mean to, to treat people as the complex beings they are? And, and I think especially in the context of politics, it could mean something like these people who seem like they can't be reached or uh, I'm not talking about trying to convert everyone, mm. but just like what does it mean if we want the country to move in a certain direction, if we want people who, who live in our society to be treated better and have a political system and a healthcare system and economic system that, that uh, meets human needs and puts people above profits and all that, like what, what does it mean to, to deal with people who are complex and move them in our direction? How do we speak to them? What kind of arguments do we make? And I would just say to that end, one of the things I like about country music and that I got at in my essay too is, I think there's a rich moral vocabulary mm-hmm. that, that the language of sin and redemption, mm-hmm. the language of failure and forgiveness, right? The language of, well, as Wayland put it, getting back to the basics of love, you know, like, what, like how often do you hear politicians talk about love and faith and hope and all those things, right? Like one of the things I actually have a soft spot for with Biden is even it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but the Kierkegaard line, faith sees best in the dark. I don't know. I think that kind of moral, a rich moral language is one the left needs to think harder about too. Mm-hmm. And I think some of what we're getting at uh, maybe is an entry point into that. So I didn't mean to derail things. Ben, no, but no, I for, that was a, no, but yeah, like, I just like, just to add on to that, like, mm-hmm. listen, like if you want to radicalize somebody, like have them listen to the man in black, like have them listen to yeah. Oni, right? Like there's so many of these great, I mean, you know, I don't even have to limit the Johnny Cash. Like, you know, there's so many of these great country, um, you know, serious songs too, not like on the backtrack, like, you know, the mainstream songs that everybody knows that are quite radical in, in their lyrics. I think oh, both, and I love your Earl point Hager, too. Right? I mean, branded man. Yeah, no branded man. That's a great one. Yes. Um, and you know, Merle Haggard is one of those people too, who's like, is too maligned, I think, on, along like left wingers who like country music because Merle Haggard was really singing songs about a class of people who, you know, we definitely need to be, you know, supporting and, and uplifting right now, which is prisoners in the United States. Um, you know, like you don't, you don't have to dig that deep into country music to be able to get to the radical soul of it. No, for, sh- for, for sure. Right. And, uh, and I, I loved, uh, I loved Matt's essay. I, I thought it was really beautiful, but, uh, 
the uh, the one uh, half a nit that I, I, I do want to pick with it uh, is about the uh, there there are a couple of references in the essay to uh, Oki from Muskoki, and in, uh, in in both cases it seems to sort of uh, treat it um, you know they're both in passing but uh, you know but you um, but you you quote right of course you know we don't let our hair grow long and shaggy like the hippies out in San Francisco do uh, and and I think that it seems to be taken as um, this kind of surface reading that this is a, this is like a conservative anti-hippie song. And, and I think that there's, there's a pretty strong case to be made that, that in context, that's not really what's going on there. Sure. I, I have no, uh, uh, I, I don't think I disagree with you. Uh, and one, in, in fact, uh, probably the, the main substantive reference to that song uh, is when Richard Nixon asked Johnny Cash to play it, bizarrely. <laughs> so I, 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 I was saying that like Richard Nixon liked this song because he read it in the kind of super, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm perfectly willing to admit a certain like ironic or um, almost a purposeful caricature or something at work or just a more complex reading of it as possible. But my reference to it was the bizarre, I mean, imagine being Johnny Cash right? Like the greatest country singer in the world at that time, or most famous country singer in the world at that time, you show up to the Nixon White House and he asks you to play, okay, uh, um, you know, a Merle song. Yeah. Uh, but then, but then Johnny's reaction is one of the all time great replies ever is to launch into the song. What is truth? Yeah. And, and then, uh, which is know, a I very mean, radical talk, song too. Yes. A radical song. And I mean, talk and that's about the ballad of Ira Hayes, right? Yeah. Talk about giving the finger to Richard Nixon. That took guts. You're at the White House. He asked you to play a song and you launch into what is truth. You know, not bad. I mean, Johnny Cash is a treasure trove of like, you know, yes. just radical opportunities. I mean, the fact that he played, you know, John Brown, I think shows uh, in North mm-hmm. and South, you know, a bit of his, of his politics. But, you know, I mean, like, it is the difficult thing about doing any kind of song that you can you know, take as satire or ironic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Oki from Muskogee is obviously like, I, I would argue is probably Merle's most famous song, right? Or at least it's one of the probably. best known songs. And it did a lot of good. It also did a lot of bad. Another song, which isn't as famous, but if you go to Honky Tonks, it's constantly on Redneck Mother, um, which is also <laughs> incidentally one of my favorites. Uh-huh. But it's one of those times when I'm like singing, especially when I'm like outside of Austin and like smaller towns and I'm singing along. I have a feeling that everybody might not be getting the same kind of uh, read on the song, right? Because if people who aren't familiar with the song, you know, it's basically about beating up hippies. It's a, it, it's a play on Oki from Muskogee, um, but it's written by this guy, Ray Wiley Hubbard, who's this long-haired hippie who is definitely the person who's the target of the song, which is a joke song. But, you know, you get that feeling when you're out in the honky-tonks that they might be serious about the lyrics. So, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. you know, that is the difficult thing about, especially in country music, but in art in general, about doing anything that's kind of satirical is yeah. that people will take you for your yeah. word. No, yeah, and, and I mean, so, some of that's just that people, like, people enjoy uh, artistic depictions of them, uh, regardless of the uh, the intentions of the artist, right? I mean, like, that's uh, true. you know, there, there, there are lots of... of hardcore gung-ho jingoistic marines mm-hmm. who love full metal jacket there uh, you know there are mm-hmm. you know there are gangsters who uh who, who love all of the scorsese movies you know <laughs> right right yeah yeah so at a um, certain point you know yeah. like, like it's, it's just gonna have that uh that other life right you know because because yeah. it's because because people you know enjoy seeing themselves uh in in these works of art and and they'll they'll take it the way that they're going to take it but i really like what you said earlier matt because 
because I, I think that that part of you know part of the problem with like the uh, like the music blog that Griscom was talking about earlier, right? Where you're sort of trying to do this thing where you say, okay, like which one of these artists are good guys, basically, <laughs> and which are bad right. guys? <laughs> yeah. Let's you know, let's separate out the sheep and the goats. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah. Is, yeah. is that um, is that if it were really that easy? I mean, I think it probably wouldn't be worth much as art. No, no, mm. and in fact, um, I got at this when we uh, recorded with. Uh, when we talked about my essay on, on Know Your Enemy, we had uh, Shuja Hader on, uh, who, who knows more about country music than I do, and is a really brilliant guy. And, uh, and of course, Sam, you know, we were all talking about it. And I, another way into my essay that I tried to kind of point to was to say, you know, when you talk about the politics of country music, you can have the ledger, right? Okay, on the, on the left side, you have maybe, you know, certain Johnny Cash albums. Um, you know, you can, you can go through... Uh, you know, artists who made statements that were more politically progressive or whatever. And then you have the, the right wing country music artists on the other side and you weigh and balance them and you say, okay, oh, so there's one more on this column. So that's what country music is. Whereas the point of my essay was to get at the deeper thematic questions mm. of, again, like, who, who are we as human beings? How do we live together? How do we love each other? How do we hurt each other? Those kinds of questions. Um, and I just one one addendum is another album of Johnny Cash's. Sorry, I'm gonna oh, I'm being pulled back, uh, but it's it really gets at some of these things. I've been listening a lot lately to his Bitter Tears album. Uh, so Johnny was not just interested in uh, you know prisons and the plight of prisoners, but uh, Native Americans, and that's a, it's a fascinating album because I listen to some of the songs and I cringe a bit. Right, they they. A lot of them were written by, I think, Peter Lafarge, um, who, who, like, I, I think like, there's some ambivalences about. But it's like, okay, so this is this guy in the 60s who really, really cared about how Native Americans had been treated in our history. He does this album. It's sort of, it's almost the cover. He, he almost, like, is in quasi-Native American garb. So it's this weird mix of, like, like really forward-thinking concern <laughs> Uh, and uh, kind of identifying an issue that was not being talked about enough while singing some songs that make you certain references don't land and almost bordering on appropriation at times. Um, so like you, even an album like that to me speaks to a certain complexity and how do we think about these things? And, you know, when we make arguments or when you, when you listen to songs that pick up certain things or, or you know, pick up certain on certain themes and topics and subjects, it's all complicated. <laughs> uh, and again, you could, I'm sure there's a, like a really wonderful essay to be written about like what Johnny Cash did wrong in recording bitter tears. Mm -hmm. But there's also a sense in which I look back and think, damn, like 60 years ago, this guy was really, really concerned with how native Americans were being treated and cared enough to write a, or to record a whole album about, you know, songs that depicted some of their experiences and, I, you know, I don't know how you adjudicate some of those questions. It's not my, my field or you know, something that I have any expertise in, but it just, um, the theme of complexity made me think of that too, because yeah, that, that was another issue Johnny really, really cared about. There's one thing that I want to say, actually just emphasizing your point, which is um, how important it is for art to be challenging, right? Uh, because I think art is at its most sterile and uninspiring when it's safe. Uh, and one mm -hmm. of the odd things, uh, and one of the reasons I think it's actually important to emphasize this is, of course, 
You have people like Paul Joseph Watson on the right who are trying to claim that conservatism is the new counterculture because we're the new punk rockers, right? Standing against all this PC nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, people have pointed out that this is all bullshit, right? You know, mm-hmm. let's, you know, Blue Lives Matter, you know, let's, you know, all put flowers out to the police. It's never going to be a punk anthem, right? Um, but I think there is this association um, in many people's minds of the left with this kind of staid PC art that we need to push against by pointing out that, no, as progressives, we want art to depict the complexities of the world, particularly the complexities um, people, you know, who are on the lower ends of the spectrum end mm-hmm. up facing, right? Uh, and so what we precisely want isn't art that's safe. We want art that's radical, right? And that provokes people to think about the world in a radical way. David, do you, do you want to jump in on the Johnny Cash thing? Looked like you were starting to say something earlier. Oh, me? No, I mean, that's definitely an interesting question. I was just going to add, you know, it's not just Johnny Cash. It's like, you know, Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson still gets police unions protesting his concerts (laughs) because he supported Comrade Leonard Peltier, Um, (laughs) as did Waylon Jennings. So I think out of all the great outlaws, you know, he would do free free concerts, um, you know, in Indian country all the time at yeah. the height of his career. Um, you know, it's just like, it's definitely one of those things where it's, it's interesting to sometimes listen. I mean, like think about a song like America by Waylon Jennings, which probably if like you would hear the pop version of that, it wouldn't be that interesting. Um, Cause it's very like, you know, what, what if we all came together and held hands kind of song, <laughs> but you know, it's a beautiful um, song, especially if you think about the time when he's talking about, um, you know, he said, this is, you know, not PC anymore. He's like the red man is right to expect a little from you promise and then follow through. And this is somebody who's saying that in the height of aim activism. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I think that's a story too. That's just not as well known as like, with those greats, the outlaw greats, the yeah. Johnny Cash, the Highwaymen, like that they had yeah. a very, they were standing very strongly um, with Native American people at a quite important time in yes. political history in this country, which a lot of people also don't aren't familiar with the AIM history yeah. in the United States. Yeah, um, and even you know, the, um, it's a slightly different point, but I, I mentioned in my essay that uh, when I went to see Willie when he wore my cowboy hat, uh, my grandfather, this is he, he's still he's still living um, in his eighties now. Uh, but at the time I remember going over to hang out with him, talk. And I told him I was going to see Willie Nelson and it was a very funny comment. He said, how much was the ticket? And it really was cheap. It was like 15 bucks. Mm -hmm. This is like maybe 2004 or five, but you know, not an expensive ticket. And he, he kind of nodded and said, Willie's always been a friend of the working man. You know, and and, and, and even things like concert prices, ticket prices, you know, that's not, that itself it kind of can convey a certain concern for different parts of the country or different, you know, different kinds of people who can't afford a $75. I mean, before the pandemic hit, um, I had t- uh, floor seats at Madison's or, you know, the, the uh, floor seats of Madison square garden to see Sturgill Simpson. And I will not tell you what they cost, uh, uh, but you know, so things like that matter too. No, things really do. If you don't mind me just like, you know, piggybacking sure. off of that, you know, growing up people who are familiar with my work and whatever, like know my background, you know, I grew up very poor, you know, white trash. Um, and I, I'll never forget those. I didn't have a dad growing up either. So I very much relied on my friend's fathers and country music. Mm-hmm. If I'm being completely honest, to like play that role in my life. Um, but I'll never forget like my, one of my neighbor's dads who was a truck driver would just go on for like 20 minutes about how good of a guy Willie Nelson was because he would play <laughs> free concerts um, for yeah. truckers from time to time. You know what I mean? Like, no, those things really stick with people. And that's why like more than anything, I hope that people, um, even if you don't like the music, which you should, because it's really good and it's artistic. And I hope that we haven't 
move too far away from actually talking about the beauty of country music. But politically, um, you know, people really should understand that, like, this is a, a, a popular art form. Um, that is successful and has had made an effort, maybe not so much today, I'll be honest, um, but especially in this most radical periods, which I would say in like 70s, 80s, and maybe early 90s, um, you know, was very much like a kind of radical and, and liberational kind of music for working people who felt very much that they weren't seen or recognized by popular culture at the time. And that's like, at least for me, like my favorite people are all the outlaw country, you know, generation, like that period of country music is my favorite by far, yeah. because it was a kind of music for working people in this country. With all of the complexities and beauty and, as you were saying, the love yeah. and pain and, you know, our capacity to do evil onto one another, but also to do beauty and, yeah. and love to one another. Like, that's, to me, is what... Yeah. Is well, you know, to pick up on something Matt was getting at, um, I do sometimes... I worry, because I thought of this, too, during the summer when the controversy over James Bennett and Tom Cotton came out. Um, I mean, I'm not a fan of James Bennett at all, uh, to say the least. But one of the things that occurred Love to Tom me, Cotton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. James Bennett. And, you know, I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that is funny. Um, uh, but it did make me think because I'm an I'm a writer, but I'm an editor. Um, but whether it's you know essays, articles, music, movies, whatever, you do. And to get at this question of complexity, I do feel like we're living in times in which risk, taking risks, making an argument that's difficult and complex and that you yourself might have hesitations about or mm -hmm. to produce a piece of art that could be misunderstood. Um, I feel like the culture is mitigating against that in some ways. And I don't, I don't have a grand point I'm trying to make, but I just sometimes think about, well, like the example of Bitter Tears, the Johnny Cash mm -hmm. album, that was released mm -hmm. today. He would be canceled tomorrow. For sure. For uh, putting a foot wrong. He did put a foot wrong, but it's one of those situations where like, what are the, how do we deal with risks? Because as an editor, I like to publish things where writers are, tr are pushing themselves and pushing readers. And sometimes that will mean you make mistakes or put a foot wrong. And I just, I, I again, I don't have a well-developed grand theory I'm, I'm putting out here, but I just, I do wish again, the point to push on the complexity point, I just wish maybe as a society and a culture, we rewarded good faith risk and um, people putting themselves out there making challenging arguments. And uh, it's hard to draw the line between a good faith risk that, that again, falls flat or makes a mistake versus, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, obviously there are cases where you can try to be provocative in ways that are, are not good faith and where you are just trying to push people's buttons and, and say something mm -hmm. that, that purposely elicits a, a certain kind of reaction. And that's not what I'm talking about, but I, but the, what I mentioned forgiveness and those kinds of themes, I, I just wish we could argue more, more honestly and straightforwardly, even if that means, saying things that are complex and that we ourselves aren't certain about or questions we have and, and have that be received as me saying, I'm, I'm struggling to think through this. Will you think through it with me and have that be more of the attitude than kind of, you know, looking for, again, the place where someone puts a foot wrong and, and then, okay, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, if, if, you know, I might jump in, like, uh, you know, you look at the state of, of like modern country music, 
And I'm actually not interested in like talking about how bad like the pop stuff coming out from Nashville. It's like, <laughs> like it sucks, and it's weird to have like R and B rhythms going on in the backtrack of a country thing, and you just have like a banjo like you know track on loop going on in the background. That stuff sucks. Um, I'm talking about like there's a really great YouTube channel which I highly suggest called uh, Gemstones on VHS which has a lot of these kind of like alternative or smaller country bands that put out these really great music videos. And they usually start with an interview and all those are really great. And they cut to the teeth and they deal with a lot of the serious issues that we're talking about, you know, today. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, um, from what you were talking about, you know, Matthew, I think I've also been suggested and I won't call anybody out by name, but I get suggested a lot from people who know, cause like my, my, you know, my bio on Twitter says honky tonk socialist. Um, you know, so I get people who suggest to me these country music artists and a constant theme that I get are these people who do country music and basically they just say all the right things. Right. Basically it's like a song, but it's just, it's like, I'm just going to list out all the progressive positions on politics and, you know, do that for three minutes. And I'm, I hate to say this, but I, it's horrible. Because it's not music, right? It's not, you're not doing anything artistically with it. You're just sort of stating something that you think you're going to get, you know, a, a clap like from the, the audience uh, from. It's like the musical equivalent of that style of comedy that seems to be uh, designed to elicit not laughter, but clapter, you know, that's like, oh, that's <laughs> yeah. so right. Yeah. No, it's like, and, but it's really bad with country music because people are like, oh, I'm doing this form, which people consider to be reactionary. And I'm just going to talk about, you know, progressive values for three minutes. Like that's not good <laughs> art, right? Um, you can do And I, I shout out uh, gemstones on VHS because I think a lot of those songs, not everyone, a lot of them are universal, which I prefer generally. I'm being completely honest, yeah. uh, you know, universal songs about heartbreak and travel and like living life. Um, you know, but they are radical. These are, it's definitely more in the tradition of like the Willie Nelsons yeah. and the Blaze Foley's and the Towns Van Sants than, you know, the Charlotte Daniels, right? Like that's yeah. the, that, that's the yeah. vision. But it's just like, I think that, you know, um, what, uh, sorry, there's two Matthews here. So what our friend Matthew <laughs> McManus was saying, like, that's a good question, right? It's like, you know, how can we get, you know, music that is, you know, challenging people and doing the kind of politics yeah. work that we want yeah. without falling into this trap, which is just, I'm sorry, it's exhausting to me. We're just like, you're just going to appropriate the forms of country music, have a banjo in the background, and then just like shout out the same kind of maxims. Yeah, um, three, three, three chords in the conventional wisdom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that's not good music, uh-huh. right? Yeah, um, yeah. But telling stories is good music, and you'll, you'll learn a hell of a lot more from telling your own story mm-hmm. um, or telling the real stories of working-class people in this country, um, you know, because that is going to reflect a lot more of the progressive values than any kind of, like, grand sermon is going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... On that. Oh, sorry. oh, sorry. Back up. No, I just... I uh, to a point that Matt said, made earlier on uh, about Kierkegaard... I watched a video essay recently that actually made a really good point uh, in the same respect when they're talking about Christian movies uh, and kind of Christian cinema, right? Because yeah, uh, you know yeah. that you know oh Christian cinema is a big deal don't, and it's always associated with the political right. Uh, and I've watched quite a few of them, right? Like those God Not Dead movies. God's Not Dead movies. <laughs> I realize that apparently you now I'm, I'm an evil person uh, and I'm a college professor and stuff. But, you know, one of the things that the uh, video essay has made uh, was that, look, like these movies kind of treat spirituality uh, like it's just this cheap political thing uh, mm-hmm. that's directly associated in a one-to-one correlation with whatever the Republican Party happens to say Christianity is at any given time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he contrasted that, you know, to Ben's point, you know, with the Martin Scorsese, right? Uh, particularly Martin Scorsese's movie Silence, right? Um, which is this really difficult movie to watch. Um, but he said, you know, this is actually a piece of Christian art because it's not just sitting there regurgitating right-wing tropes in this very simplistic way. It's actually challenging people who have 
real commitment to their faith tradition to ask serious questions about it, right? Yeah. And that's part of the reason, he said, why he thinks that Silence was an unpopular film that a lot of people didn't like. And the God's Not Dead movies, you know, are easily digestible and people have no problem with them as long as they happen to agree with everything the movie says. Right? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I'd also, by the way, nominate Mean Streets as a, uh, as a movie where Scorsese is actually dealing with, uh, with some pretty interesting spiritual themes. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but yeah, no, for sure. By the way, as somebody who, you know, comes out of being a, a philosophy professor, I love God. I love God's Not Dead because right. the, uh, the, the beginning, the, the, like, the like wicked atheist philosophy professor announces he's not going to waste any time on arguing about the existence of God. He just wants everybody to write down the sentence, God's not dead. Cause if there's one thing that you know about uh, academic philosophers, they fucking hate arguments, you know, like, it's like <laughs> they want you to spend as little time as possible. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was just thinking like, if you're at a university, who the fuck is going to let you sit there and argue with your student for three fucking classes, right? It's like, I've decided that we're just going to cancel the rest of the semester while I argue with this shithead mm-hmm. kid who Dare. Yeah, well, well, you definitely that would definitely show up in your student evaluations, and that that would be a problem oh. later. But um, but mm-hmm. I I do uh, but I I am glad that that at the end there I got back to the the sort of larger themes about what some of this music says about uh, human experience, and uh, and I, I want to um, I just I just want to close out by quoting my my favorite line from uh, other Matt's essay. Uh, which uh, after quoting the line that he quoted earlier, uh, if it ain't sad, it probably isn't true. <laughs> says, uh, the good times take care of themselves, demanding not answers or explanation, but simple enjoyment. It is when we suffer that we look to art, perhaps especially music, to articulate mm-hmm. the pain that we can't speak about directly. Country music isn't always sad, but its best songs are. Maybe that's why my friends on the left and I also receive sustenance from country. Beyond any politics, a certain view of the world that uh, what you take to be fundamentally at work at this veil of tears. Country music can remind us that there's a dark and troubled side of life, not just that the world we've built uh, leaves so many exploited and struggling, but that this can never be divorced from our own weakness and frailty, our cheating hearts, uh, which no amount of progress can do away with. There's a different way of thinking about what we all share, a recognition that we're united by how easily we can ruin our lives, uh, or having our lives ruined and how quickly uh, everything we love can be lost. The only sustaining response to this is something like mercy. It's a political expression, mm. might be called solidarity. And uh, I certainly can't improve on that. So I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Matt and David, for coming on. Yeah. No, thank you. I had a lot of fun. And uh, I was really, you know, I, I did, uh, I didn't mention this earlier because I didn't want anyone to tear up, but I, I did meet Michael. Brooks uh, uh, one or two times through my friend Luke Mayville. Um, oh wow! Uh, you know Luke Mayville was my uh, my professor at university. Sorry not to cut you off. Really? Well, no, no. And uh, I would uh, Luke won't mind me saying this when uh, when I was received into the Catholic Church as an adult, I grew up fundamentalist Baptist. Uh, obviously, I'm not that anymore. <laughs> but Luke was my sponsor, uh, and so I, Luke's a good friend of mine. He he recently has written about the Reclaim Idaho project for Commonweal, which. Uh, is a great article, but so I, I met Michael through him. And so when I saw this podcast start kind of in the, in the spirit of Michael, uh, that's one reason I want to come on because, uh, I admired him and, um, you know, I think some of what we talked about captures some of the themes, uh, you know, hard on systems, not people. So that's a, it really is a line that has always stayed with me. So that's one oh, yeah. reason I want to come on and why I wish all of you well. And, uh, really was grateful for the invitation. Thank you so much, Pat. Yeah.
right. I'm really, really glad that we were able to do that. I thought that was really good. Um, just as a reminder, uh, if you subscribe to the Patreon for the monthly cost of uh, a milkshake at a, the 50s Nostalgia Dining Room Pulp Fiction, uh, you can get early access to uh, to all of these episodes. You can be in uh, the, uh, the virtual uh, studio audience for that. Uh, and uh, you can also... Uh, get uh, regularly scheduled Discord office hours, uh, voice chats, uh, and uh, and some bonus essays for patrons. Uh, we're probably going to see about creating uh, some uh, Spotify playlist for patrons for some of the music that we talk about on the show. Uh, and most importantly, of course, it's it's not a subscription service. It's a it's a gesture of uh, of solidarity, and it helps get all the people who do work in the background to make the show work uh, get paid a living wage. So uh, so please do. Do that. Uh, coming up uh, next week, I uh, have Dan Sherrell, hope I'm pronouncing that right, who's the National Campaign Director for Vote Trump Out, which is an organization of ex-Bernie staffers uh, that are dedicated to uh, the proposition that uh, while Biden is certainly our enemy, um, we get to choose our enemy and we should make a, a smart tactical choice in swing states about what that is, uh, which enemy we'd rather fight for the next four years about what, uh, while at the same time organizing uh, against, uh, against the Biden administration, which is going to be hideously neoliberal in ways that we talked about on the show after, uh, after that. Going to get David Feldman, uh, who some of you know uh, from his appearances on the Michael Brooks Show and the Majority Report as an old lefty from way back, who is going to be giving us, uh, very seriously, I'm sure, a different perspective on the election. And then going to have Samuel Moyne, uh, who uh, was talked about extensively uh, earlier in this episode. Uh, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, the uh, the week after that, have uh, Greg uh, Belvedere, who's going to be talking uh, about um, about worker cooperatives, uh, and then uh, a panel on the election uh, featuring Katie Halper, Luke Savage, uh, and uh, Matt Leck. Uh, and in between those two things, going to do a Halloween bonus episode uh, with uh, Freddie DeBoer, uh, who is going to be talking about a uh, essay that he wrote about the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. So Freddie on Freddie. Look forward to that. Uh, and then the week after the election, uh, returning champ uh, Matt uh, Kushbaum Christman is going to be coming back to break down whatever the hell will have happened by then. So I hope you join us for all those upcoming episodes. I'm really excited about those. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really happy about how quickly the show has been growing, uh, all the support and love that it's been getting. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very... I'm, uh, you know, I'm excited, right? Like I said, you know, we, we live in, uh, uh, you know, we live in grim times and, and sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll make these jokes about uh, pessimism of the intellect, uh, optimism of the whiskey. Uh, but uh, but, but I, I really think that we're building something here that's good. So uh, thank you all for supporting it. Uh, I will see you next week. Left is best. Mm-hmm.